0: What kind of a show are
1: you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm
2: Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched Sea beams. Glitter in the dark needed 10 hours
2: of game. Yeah, well, I've seen some things too, Roy Batty, like porkies. Probably 12 times. Any sea uh, beams glittering in porkies, Adam? No sea beams, Josh. Only lots of G strings. It has been 35 years
1: since Rutger Hauer's Roy Batty uttered those immortal lines. And yes, 35 years since porkies. In anticipation of the Blade Runner sequel coming in October, we've got a Sacred Cow review of the Ridley Scott original. Plus, Our top five films of 1982. The Chicago
2: Tribune's Michael Phillips joins us for all that and more. Did you really see Porky's 12 times? Ahead on Film Spotting. You're listening to Film Spotting with Josh, Adam, and from the Chicago Tribune, Michael Phillips. Welcome back to Film Spotting, Michael. Thank you, men. Hey, Michael. How are you doing? It's great to have you here. We're going back 35 years to 1982. A Sacred Cow review of Blade Runner and our top five movies of that year. Michael, paint us a picture of Michael Phillips circa 1982. Is this pre-beard?
3: Uh, did you come out there with was the beard? never There was never a pre-beard period <laughs> for me. Um, uh, although I did, I did try to grow a girl beard the first year back from college and when I came home, I, I it was literally pointing and laughing all over Racine, Wisconsin. Because <laughs> it just came in and sort of thing like patches you know mm. it looked like the thing the carpenter movie okay
2: we, we'll get there
3: with a beard it was like the thing <laughs> with a, with an attempt at a beard and then a couple of years later I, I and then I never got rid of it after that
2: it sounds Once like you the perfected most, it yeah you I, stuck I, with it. <laughs> I stuck with it the most disturbing monster I've ever heard of is yes, what you're I, describing <laughs> It's certainly the scariest thing we've seen ever seen. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll get to a few more Michael Phillips stories and more embarrassing ones at that, as we do get into that list of our favorite films of 82. More on that year, the year of E.T., of Rocky III, and yes, Porky's, later in the show. But first, our Sacred Cow review of the 1982
1: movie that decreed, henceforth and forevermore, every sci-fi dystopia must feature neon and endless rain. It's Ridley Scott's Blade Runner.
3: They jumped the shuttle off-world killed the crew and passengers. We found the shuttle drifting out the coast two weeks ago, so we know they're around. Embarrassing. No, sir, not embarrassing, because no one's ever going to find out they're down here. That you're going to spot them and you're going to air them out.
0: I don't work here anymore. Give it to Holt.
2: He's good. I did. He can breathe okay, as long as nobody unplugs him. It's not good enough. Not good as you. I need you, Dex. This is a bad one. The worst yet. I need the old Blade Runner. I need your magic.
3: The film Blade Runner survives in several different versions, and point-by-point, replicant-by-replicant comparisons between the eight cuts, most of which are actually available today, they've fueled many a Comic-Con conversation and countless film nerd arguments since the first version was released to mainstream bafflement, and disappointing box office figures back in June 1982, when I was 21 years old. That same day, in June, John Carpenter's remake of The Thing came out, too. And both those films have grown in stature over the years. That's kind of an obvious point, but it's true. And you can find plenty of fans who would pick either The Thing or Blade Runner, very different brands of science fiction, as their number one film of that year, 1982, whether they were born then or not. Blade Runner comes from the Philip K. Dick story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And even those who didn't care much about the film version, directed by Ridley Scott, they had to acknowledge the density and fascination of the visual quality of the film, the production design, the effects, and the overall atmosphere. This was Los Angeles in the year 2019, perpetual rain falling, miserable crowding, huge, looming video billboards that, well, actually did come to pass, more or less, by 2017, more so than the flying cars. Blade Runner Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, who may or may not be a replicant himself, depending on the version of the film you're watching, chases down four rogue replicants targeted for elimination, but he meets a formidable match in Rutger Hauer's Ubermensch of a lemon-haired god. So, when I saw the film at 21... Guys, you weren't even born yet, I know. I came out wildly conflicted, but was very eager to see it a second time very soon, to really see it, see all of it, or at least more of it. Two questions I have for you. One, did Blade Runner flop back in 82 because George Lucas had reoriented the mass audience's taste for retro-futuristic science fiction so radically five years earlier with Star Wars? And two, is Blade Runner a movie for you today that was simply ahead of its time and now seems very much what Ridley Scott intended it to be, an L.A. story with legs longer than Joanna Cassidy's. So I wanted to end on that sleazy note. Thank you.
1: (laughs) Appreciate that. I think you're right why Blade Runner was probably initially rejected. You put this side by side with something like Star Wars, and it's absolutely a different experience. Contemplative. I was relieved, though, that it wasn't overbearing in that way. My memory of it, having seen probably the original theatrical release later in the 80s, I would have come across it, is what I initially watched. And my memory was that it was more ponderous, more existential on the surface in the way, oh, I don't know, Prometheus is now or even (laughs) Alien Covenant a little bit. Covering similar ground. Yes, it is. You're actually promulgating the auteur theory. Well, but I think that – I think that – In comparison to those films in particular, it wears those elements lightly. Hmm. In comparison to Star Wars, it wears them heavily. So that's probably a reason. I really did enjoy it this time for the record. Watched the final cut. Looked amazing. Mm -hmm. The Blu-ray. I mean, the first thing we need to say, and you touched on it, Michael, is the visual aesthetic of this film. This thing could have been made yesterday, Mm -hmm. especially if you're watching it on a decent screen on Blu-ray. It just holds up absolutely from the flying cars to the... Here's the, the world-building detail that jumped out at me this time. That's just a small thing, but you multiply this you know 50 times and you get a full world. The handles of the umbrellas, how they glow, fluorescent. Huh. And you add enough of those and you get this parade of bobbing, glowing sticks down the street. It's just something like that in terms of prop design, mm-hmm. production design that really fills out this world. And I think that's why the movie has been so influential and has lingered because it set that vision for so many people. Mm. And I think also because it's the definitive sci-noir. I mean, this is a merging of those two genres, science fiction and film noir. I think, and maybe we can get into this, that's Mm -hmm. absolutely the movie's strength in some ways, but it's also there are areas to this where if you're holding it up as a film noir, it does fall teeny bit short for Mm -hmm. me but absolutely love this revisit uh spoiler it makes my top five films of 1982 now the big question that's going to be harder for me is do i prefer this or really scott's alien because i think that's one we've Bandied about on the show here, Adam, and have always said, "Well, it would really take a revisit of Blade Runner to answer that." Yeah. Now we kind of have to, and I don't have an answer right now. I don't either. Excellent. I I think
3: you've hit on another reason why the 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 mainstream audience back in '82 was just sort of perplexed and a little bit turned off by Blade Runner because they had just you know the last thing they remember with that that brand name on it, Ridley Scott, was Alien, which really you know grabbed people
1: by the throat and much more pure genre.
3: Absolutely, and uh, yeah, the sci noir handle I like that and really only spielberg's minority report would sort of compete maybe with with
2: more recent work in that same genre yeah no yeah. i want to echo a lot of what you said there josh including the stuff about its noir influence but first the cinematography jordan cronenwith we'll talk about that a little bit the art direction yeah the visual look of the film is still incredibly stunning and i'm thinking of this too a little bit not just in the context of something like star wars but We did a while back here on the show, a 70s sci-fi marathon, and we covered a lot of movies that were made in the early part of that decade that are kind of silly now, though I wouldn't say The Andromeda Strain is necessarily silly. And I I like that movie, but maybe something like Silent Running Mm. looks pretty quaint and cheesy from the 2017 perspective. But some of the stuff made in the mid to later part of that decade, too, Logan's Run. Right, right they feel way more than five or six years apart. They feel generations apart from a filmmaking standpoint. And it's almost as if this future dystopia had really never existed before Blade Runner. I feel like it has been the influence for every film that has followed it. And one of the things that really stood out to me was the sense watching it that it's terrifying. It does feel like a dystopia very much at times in terms of the overcrowding. We are clued into the fact that If you want to get away, and most people do, they go off world, right, that that these are kind of the nobodies. And even the detective or the cop Bryant at one point says that to him, if you're not a cop, you're one of the little people. Well, this is a world full of little people of leave behinds who really have kind of no future. So it's a scary place at times and terrifying, but it's also just because of the look of it. Exciting and alluring and somehow inviting, like you almost want to go right. and experience this version and of Los you do, Angeles. And
3: you believe what you're looking at. And, and and in a funny way, without any of the corny taglines like uh, what, was, what we were affixed to Superman, a uh, very different you know <laughs> science fiction fantasy uh, a few years earlier. You know you can believe in what you're watching a lot because the film takes place at night and it's raining and there's a you know there's a, it's got the right texture and background that the kind of effects that Scott was working. Working with and his team uh, they you they 're pulled off you don 't see any of the usual blues you know lines around mm-hmm. the side. a little bit here and there, but it's just it just has a believability that other, now is it does it connect does it satisfy on story terms that 's what you know back in eighty two audiences were kind of like it 's not an untrackable plot it 's a very simple plot mm-hmm. it 's simply okay you know one Relatably, you know, kind of worn down, par- private eye type figure. You know, in this case, a Blade Runner uh, is has to chase down kind of one by one these these targets, mm-hmm. these replicants. The film's got a very kind of vignette structure, and that's unusual. You know, especially coming off. Year before, you had the second Star Wars film, Empire Strikes Back. You know, of course, the main Star Wars film, 77. You know, that that kind of pacing for the time was just pure Atari, right? You know, like fast. And you didn't get mm-hmm. a sense of like even segments or big scenes. It was just all one ride, right? Mm-hmm. Blade Runner, very different. And, and I think, Josh, even if you didn't experience it as ponderous or heavy it, at the time it sure. I, I think it was it was kind of it was disorienting you know sure
1: and you know as far as the story beats go you can even sense in the final cut which is you know Scott's preferred version that things are still being a bit patched together in terms of Ford's identity, Deckard's identity, mm-hmm. his relationship with the Shang young character. And even here, there's the one glimpse of the unicorn, right? The one dream sequence. And you somewhat know how to fit that in if you have familiarity with the lore about all these other versions. But seeing that just on its own, it's a little, it stands out. So you can tell that there are pieces trying to be forced together here narratively. And I think that does provide a little bit of a hiccup. But again, it's it's more of a mood that this movie is managing to evoke. It's that fatalism from film noir mm-hmm. that it really latches onto and makes us feel. Of course, you have things like, we've mentioned the floating billboard that has spotlights that are constantly streaming through all the windows, and all the windows have Venetian blinds, right, right? in 2019 <laughs> Los Angeles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you get this noir sense. You get Harrison Ford, you know, I was a little disappointed, him being a hero of my youth from all these other films, you know, Indiana Jones and Han Solo. Here he's just a harder drinking <laughs> Indiana Jones, a little crabbier, otherwise tries to float by on the same charisma. He's no Sam Spade, in other words. Hmm. Uh, doesn't he's quite. so disaffected. He's fine, yeah, though. He's fine, but you could tell he's working against that charm that he brought to those other parts purposefully. You can see why he was drawn to this. You know, I'm going to make my anti-Star Wars in a way, but I think that still makes for a somewhat less interesting character. The movie, really, for me, belongs to Rutger Hauer. And this is where the fatalism comes in. This is where this movie... Becomes about mortality. And yeah. the replicants just stand in for us. They have this four year lifespan. And Roy Batty, the way he has a dreaminess. He, he's in wonder at the world, even as he despises his corporate creators mm-hmm. who have given him this four-year lifespan. And the way that's Howard how it works balances— the, I should say
3: that's how it works at the Trib, too. It's just a four-year renewal.
1: <laughs> oh, I was going to say, you've been renewed a few, a few times, so, times. A couple of times. Not yet retired, thank yeah. goodness. Yeah. The, way, the way Howard balances those two things, though, where there, there's this poet inside him, yes. inside this assassin— And he recognizes his mortality and the way that reflects on all of us gives Blade Runner, despite any plot confusion, this heavy sort of noir fatalism that I think sticks with you. Yeah,
3: I might argue with you on that. I think that – to me that is where the – The eye rolling I do experience, and I know this is sacrilege for the for the Blade Runner fans out there, but but, and I am a fan. I I mean, I I saw it twice back then, and I've certainly seen it twice or three times since. But um, uh, tears and rain doesn't work for you. Well, I uh, you know I do enough of my own. I, I don't need to. But I think other things about that movie you know really do point to everything Ridley Scott w- explored over and over with you know the alien sort of world of the more recent films he he loves this idea of of you know life as it is lived or imagined by non-human you know creations mm-hmm. and it's a, it's a great theme you know and it's and it gets right to the kind of you know everything from you know there's a lot of movies and novels right next door to this idea and i think i think it's 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 the point of this movie but there is something a little dead about the Harrison Ford character. He's reactive. Yeah. He's sullen. There's mm-hmm. just not, there's no heroics, you know, all that. And all this Harrison Ford knew going in, he wasn't yet an interesting enough actor to play two notes at once within that range. Yeah, he's,
1: he's coasting on, yeah, on he his wasn't. charisma here a little bit. Remember when you were six?
3: You and your brother snuck into an empty building through a basement window? You were going to play doctor? He showed you his... When it got to be your turn, you chickened and ran. Remember that? You ever tell anybody that? Your mother, Tyrell, anybody? <laughs> you remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. Then one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched.
0: The egg hatched? And... And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her. Implants. Those aren't your memories. They're somebody else's. They're Tyrell's
3: nieces.
2: I am a big fan of the villain performances here. I would include actually even Pris, Daryl Hannah, yes, in the mix here. That's, a, good, I, that's I like, a really good scene. I think William Sanderson is the actor who plays J.F. Sebastian, who Treasure. sees them, and when he sees Roy Batty come in, he knows for sure, if he didn't know already, that both of them are replicants, and he says, you're just so perfect, and they are. There's something about them that instantly suggests that, but I'm with you, Josh, in terms of loving the Howard character and performance, and I love that he is this character. He's built up as a bad guy, Bryant calls him the worst, and he's a menacing figure, and we are supposed to be afraid of him a little bit, I think, but he gets scared, which we don't see a lot from villains in these types of sci-fi movies. He gets emotional, and I do think that end soliloquy is still, for me, one of the most tragic and moving soliloquies in all of cinema. This idea that he's lamenting memories and locations and visions that are completely made up they are they are meaningless to any human being listening to what he's describing and yet the way he does it the fact that he is so poetic about it and so evocative in his delivery it makes it such a lament that you feel the power of that so i i do love that performance and look what i responded to when i saw this movie for the first time and honestly the last time it was back in college it was over 20 years ago i saw this film but that question of course, that typical sort of cliche, if you will, sci-fi question, what ultimately makes us human. And of course, the movie suggests that beyond emotions, beyond a capacity for imagination, maybe it is memories. And beyond memories, it's this instinct for survival, the desire to live, to go beyond your life expectancy, however you pull that off. And so we get into that That similar ground to some of the Alien movies with Scott, where he loves the idea of meeting your maker, confronting your maker, and asking for more life or demanding more life, which is something I think we would all probably do if we could. It is a fundamentally human quest. One of the things I missed, though, that really stuck out to me this time watching it that fits in with all of this is the end of the film, that showdown between Batty and Deckard. I always saw as Batty just kind of toying with Deckard, maybe ultimately having sympathy for him. He spares him, of course, but toying with him, but just kind of prolonging their confrontation, that he is ultimately going to take him down. Whether he changes his mind or not is something we can discuss. But I thought maybe okay, he he has a cruel streak in him and he's gonna take it out on Deckard, who has killed his friends, the other replicants. And then what I really tapped into this time is the way Scott emphasizes Deckard's struggle to survive, really keying in on the links he goes to in order to survive, climbing through those holes, climbing up on that bureau, whatever it is, going through the ceiling, going out on that ledge, the way he's hanging on for dear life, literally, right. and his fingers are about to fall. And we are constantly seeing that from Batty's perspective, too. I think in a lot of ways, it's a more intense and shortened version of the entire struggle of Batty, And his replicants since they had their mutiny and escaped. It's basically I think what he sees in him in that moment is that same desire to live, that same desire to survive that he himself feels. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately then sees a certain kinship with him. And there's a
1: there's a Mm -hmm. vulnerability there, too. Mm And I I think so this is what Ford does have. and, And this is what he had from the start. It's the same thing that Bruce Willis tapped into that made him an iconic action hero was vulnerability. This guy could get hurt. You know, he wasn't like Stallone or he wasn't like Schwarzenegger in this way. And we see that in Ford's performance here. I think it works really well. And I think what's so moving about that climactic showdown is that Batty just succumbs to his own exhaustion and weariness and maybe realizes the futility of this human emotion he's experiencing, Mm -hmm. revenge. Does that make him human, that he now wants to pursue vengeance for Deckard killing the other replicants? I don't know. Maybe. And the speech itself works for me because— it's almost as if Batty had been programmed for Shakespeare. It's that dramatically <laughs> given, right? Yeah, the, that's is. why we remember it. It's very melodramatic. but He's under, theatrical. He's theatrical. He makes entrances. Underneath that, you can sense that there's something also deeply felt about what he's saying that that Howard is also bringing to the performance. And I think that's where the connection is made where then we start to realize, okay, this whole movie is about our own mortality, whether we're replicants or not. Maybe that's where it has a leg up on – I can see what you're saying, Michael – Alien, you could, you could well, say it's totally Alien different. This, it's a different right, but kind of thing. In terms yeah. of the the artificially intelligent figure, you could say, well, Alien did this with one side character, you know, in, in Ash. Everything that Blade Runner is doing, Alien did kind of off to the side. To a degree, I see that. But I think there's something larger and more universal about this sense of mortality that we're experiencing in Blade Runner that we don't maybe get – in the character of Ash. Now, does it matter Aaliyah.
3: Does it matter to you guys? The, the key question that everybody keeps
2: coming back to was: is Deckard a So I want to talk about that for yeah. sure. I don't know if I'm ready to get there yet, but I think we should close with that for sure. I want to go back to something you both brought up in terms of the narrative and how successful or unsuccessful it is because one of the co-screenwriters here, David Peoples, I saw a comment from him where he said, I think fairly recently, that if you're talking about Ridley Scott and you have to choose visuals over narrative, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says you always go with visuals, but damn, I wish it had a better narrative, people said. So basically ah, commenting okay. on See? his own material that Scott and envisioned this is, this is on I, screen. This is, I think, a limitation so of the film. So you guys touch on this a little bit. I wondered if there were any more specifics about what specifically with the story didn't work. What I would single out does go back to what you were talking about, Josh, in terms of the Sean Young character. And I love her performance. And of course, part of what I love about her performance is the way Cronenwith lights her. And the fact that every time she walks into a room and the way she walks in and out of shadows, you are just mesmerized by her. And and it is down to her movement itself is also fascinating. But, oh, that sex scene. Will you kiss me?
0: I can't rely on...
2: Say you kiss me. The ramifications of it, everything that would go with this character, Deckard, who we can talk about the replicant part of this later, but a human, we perceive him to be, we believe he perceives himself to be, about to engage in this act with a replicant. The movie takes no time to really think about any of the consequences of that whatsoever. and. I think that the whole thing is so bizarre that there is a noir inevitability. From the moment she walks in, she's a mall and they seem to be drawn to each other in some way. I'll give the movie that. But when it happens, it still feels like the movie hasn't completely earned that relationship between them. And I think you can even point to something like the fact that she plays a major role in the plot when she saves his life pulling out a gun randomly on the street and killing a replicant who's trying to kill Harrison Ford. Where does that come from other than it's serving a plot need? Right, right. I think that's absolutely true.
1: And, And I also think here's where the noir comparisons don't do the movie any favors because a strength of all the classic film noirs is the femme fatale, and Young, I wouldn't, you know, I I don't think it's that arresting of a performance, but I think that's because of the script, Adam, not because of anything Young is doing. Certainly she is lit in that way. They Mm -hmm. they set her up to be that femme fatale, but they have not written her that way. The scene you talked about, the sex scene, rape scene (laughs) almost is how it plays now. I mean, it's really disturbing Um, when you watch the scene through today's eyes, maybe, that 1980 two audiences might not have, but I think it's also just troubling because the character is never fully developed, and it's a crucial character, right? Rachel should be the linchpin between the replicant world and the human world, and she's not given enough narrative support I think to make she, that work. I think she captures think that I, I otherworldliness. Would, nah, I,
3: would, I would argue with, with uh, I think both those performances it's not that they were spring chickens. I mean, it, they had, you know, they had done some work mm-hmm. by then, Ford and, and Young, but I think those performances are not quite what they could be, even given that script. I think I think craftier, wittier performers, not necessarily playing for laughs or anything. God knows I wouldn't, you know, th- that film can only accommodate so much levity at all. But um, I think craftier performers would play that guessing game a little more about how human or how replicant we really are to, in, in different different degrees with these two characters. Uh, but I think, again, I get the sense of kind of one note hit hard. Um, I don't know if Ridley Scott's even really an actor's director, frankly. And I think Young, you know, I think he could get 100 actresses in Hollywood who probably would have pulled it off more so than Young. Wow. But, yeah, me- medium talent at best, I think. Hmm. Now, Ford, obviously, better than that on his high end. He wasn't there yet mm-hmm. with this. And I think that's a limitation of the film. I think also just the storytelling rhythm even if it's if it's a simple going to do this going to do this going to do this and then i'm going to you know meet my waterloo maybe at the yeah. end that's a very methodical segmented uh, Vignette oriented kind of structure, and I think that's probably why the screenwriter David Peoples, the co-writer, mm-hmm. you know, was a little frustrated because yeah. it's, it just is what it is. It's not much, you know, and and you get all this setup. And one of my favorite scenes is the one with Joanna Cassidy as the snake handler, you know, in the window, yeah. and, and and she's you know, that's a performer who is completely alive. I mean, she's a great actress anyway, and I wish she had gotten the role she deserved at the you know in her heyday. But uh, but that you know that obviously that replicant's life story is over five minutes later. After this sort of like baroquely sadistic series of, you know, running through the plate glass windows, which is like that was even even in the history of plate glass being smashed on film, <laughs> that was a ton of plate glass. It was. And, and it's a bit, that's to me, that moment is kind of it's perfect. It's a perfect, you know, emblem of what Ridley Scott's up to. It's it's gorgeous, and it's a, it's unsettling, and it might be a tiny bit much. <laughs> yeah. and, that's, and that's Ridley Scott, you know, whether you love him or not.
2: I have to say, I did get really caught up in that question of whether or not Deckard is a replicant. And one of my questions to you guys is, why does it matter, really? Why is it that some people refuse at this point to accept it. What is it about the film or those characters or us as movie watchers that want to cling to some notion that he isn't? But before we get there, let's go ahead and try to answer the question. Because like I said, it is something that I've been thinking about since I finished the film. Where do you guys come out?
1: I'd have to separate—what would you say if you had just watched, say, the final cut? I mean, is there enough there that we'd even be asking the question? I think that one sequence of the unicorn is maybe the biggest hint, especially after we've learned that memories have been implanted. He seems confused at where that has come from. Yeah, And that may be just enough for you to say, oh, okay, in addition to the Rachel character, who has already been someone who's deluded to think they're real. So maybe you could surmise it, but honestly— Just having watched the final cut, I think it's just a
2: tantalizing possibility. Well, I did want to scan to this scene before I sat down here, and I failed to do so in the original theatrical cut. But I think there's one other giveaway even before the unicorn. I think there are some other hints and clues potentially along the way. And yes, I only watched the final cut this time, but there is a hint that really Scott puts in there that I assume is in the theatrical version originally, which is a question. She openly brings it up, right? She raises it to him in his apartment. She says, "Have you taken the test? Are you sure right. you want to?" Yeah, that's true. So it, it yeah. puts that in our minds, right. at least yes. as viewers. Does. He doesn't hear it because he falls asleep. I think there are some other things that you could cling to if you were looking for the support. The way Bryant refers to him as a one man slaughterhouse, the fact that he does seem to have such a non-life, almost like a replicant might, and he seems almost like he was programmed to do this job and do only that job, and he doesn't have the sense of empathy. There's a vulnerability and an emotion to someone like Roy Batty, but he has no problem hurting anyone along the way to get to what he ultimately wants. Deckard is very much the same way. I was even thinking about some of the dialogue where there is that line I reference where Bryant says about Batty, there is a bad one, he's the worst, he says to Deckard later, aren't you the good one? And it makes me think almost, I wonder if it's playing with the idea whether um, Batty knows um, something or Ridley Scott, again, is just sort of toying with us. Mm-hmm. The idea that, well, he's the, he's the good replicant who's serving the people. So anyway, that's there. There is a clue, I think, in the photographs on his piano. Mm-hmm. Remember, we see yep. that. and. We do learn earlier that the replicants, they, they love those photos, they cling to those, to, they're, given to, yeah. they're given those as, as memories of a supposed real past. So that's all there. And then we, of course, get to the unicorn. And I want to talk about that and, and the, the origami leave behind, Edward James Olmos, <laughs> right, <laughs> the, the at the end of the film. That would seem to be pretty strong evidence, right, that, that this must be a case where he's a replicant because it is referencing his daydream as you said, the unicorn earlier, which ties back to Rachel and the clip we heard and Harrison Ford informing her, no, you're really a replicant because that might have been Tyrell's nieces. Those were implanted in you. And it's as if Gaff, the Edward James Olmos character, is saying, I've read your file just like you read hers. That that was just an implant that unicorn that's why he made a unicorn there so that would seem to clinch it right that that he must be a replicant or that ridley scott is absolutely trying to say but is the that movie, he the is. movie but is the movie better but, for it no I, I don't know so so we'll get there let me just finish my spiel here okay, on whether or okay, not okay. he is because you can counter that and say in the original version we don't get the unicorn daydream right we do get the origami figure at the end And all it conveys is nothing more than Gaff basically showing, I was there, I could have killed her, and I didn't. And that's how we all saw the the first version of this film, and that was enough. Or on your tail. Or or that too. I, I certainly read it as, he was here, he had his chance to take her down, he's letting them get away. Deckard seems to realize that. And he kind of reacts nonchalantly. It's not as if Deckard reacts to that as if, as if he's been stunned by some existential realization that he's a replicant, he, he sort of turns and with some urgency heads out the door with her. So this is all leading to the fact that I think the more emphatic giveaway is that goldish red glow that only the replicants have in their eyes. If you watch the, the whole film, yeah. only the artificial figures right. have that glow in their eyes. And damn it, Deckard has it in the scene back at the apartment where he's standing right next to her, kind of behind her, behind her shoulder, and she has it in her eyes and he has it in her eyes. And why would that be there? Adam, yeah. that's the look of love. <laughs> I mean, it does beg the question, why do we only see it that once hmm. in him? Right. But well, why would he have that if he comes, wasn't artificial? Right. And it does come and go for her as well, I believe. Yeah, it's, it's not there so, all the time. Nobody, it for
3: nobody questions whether not Sean Young as a replicant at all. They know. I mean, from you, they the first don't. Line, you
2: you know, know it right away. you like
3: my owl? I mean, <laughs> that's not a human. That's not you a human. Do. That's not human banter.
2: I guess I would at least say this, and we should throw out there, that Ridley Scott has been pretty clear now recently in saying, he yeah, is. he's yeah, a replicant. He I mean, right. if, you're, if you're not agreeing okay. with that, you're so, kind of an idiot. But I would argue that, OK, I think he's a replicant, meaning Scott thinks that's the most satisfying interpretation. And he's now basically made it impossible with this final cut. For us to think otherwise, but I do think it was added after the fact. Post mythology rather than pre-mythology. I I think it's as if Ridley Scott had decided, I like the mythology of it better and I'm going to embrace it. But it wasn't necessarily there. I did hear Harrison Ford say in something though that it was something Scott was talking to him about on the set, and he constantly rejected it and would act against that. So, so that, for me, that counters right, my theory. Right, right. So, so for me, the best <laughs>
1: film would be, and this speaks to your question, Michael, does it make it a better film if he is or if he isn't? Yeah, yeah. The best film for me is the one where it is that tantalizing possibility, where we're not being directed or hit over the head with so many clues, maybe given hints, maybe given suggestions. Yeah. And you leave the film wondering. I mean, I, I, it's it's a little dispiriting that – this movie has gotten so gobbled up by such a controversy. Yeah. when it leaves no room for wonder. No, then, not anymore. You know, that's what the best the best science fiction I, I think, does. I will also
3: say this: the best, uh, it, it it the best science fiction, a lot of it anyway. It really doesn't give a damn about how the if the narrative's working in conventional, satisfying terms. You know, a movie like Terry Gilliam's Brazil is unthinkable without Blade Runner. And it's got a very different sort of retro-futuristic world building going on. But it's similarly amazing to watch Mm -hmm. and to look at. And that's another one that kind of tells a simple, maybe reductive story just enough to kind of hang gilliam's preoccupations on and and that's written by good people and tom Stoppard worked on that script and i mean it's it's got a lot of but it doesn't it's not a story film it just isn't and i think a lot of metropolis fritz lang's metropolis back which which if
1: anything sets the tone for blade
3: absolutely which influenced everything we're talking about honestly Mm -hmm. uh it's you know that's that's a bunch of Kind of adolescent hooey I mean frankly I, on story level i don 't care right you know and that's and as much as I admire blade Runner and and have happily kind of reentered its world and kind of puzzled through these questions uh, about you know replicant or no or whatever um you know just as just as much i 'm still 'm still the twenty one year old I was struggling to kind of wonder well what would have made it what would have made it really haunt my dreams as opposed to just Kind of, kind of encouraged me to seek out its visual rewards. You know, which is a little different. It's a, you know, it, the craft is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And, and I think
1: bad is your answer. I mean, that's that's a that, very haunting experience that we're thrust in the middle of, and it's it's a non-human one, and yet somehow the movie in that climax makes it completely identifiable to me. I mean, that that is yeah. that is what elevated this for me on. The rewatch. Uh-huh. I knew it would be visually stunning. I was glad to see that the visuals mm-hmm. held up so well, but to recognize that it also had this undercurrent of of fatalism that did hit, that did land, um, was probably one of the more rewarding aspects. Can we
3: at least agree on in fin- uh, in closing that w- I w- we wouldn't mind a different composer? Absolutely. Evangel- okay. The Vangelis
1: score okay. really dates it. I I think there. In the sex scene scene, That's really the only point where it bothered me, to be honest. Yeah, I was going to say, I found it to be almost like this, alongside the rain, this synthetic storm that washed over the movie, especially when we were seeing any cityscape or having any sort of this immersive scene setting in the world, I thought the score worked really well to have this sort of electronic synth-heavy score. But then you take those same musical techniques and put them in a love scene that's already not working, and it's disastrous. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. (laughs) Blade Runner is available on whatever futuristic platform you watch your movies on, but only replicants know if they're watching the correct cut of the film or not. (laughs) The final cut of Blade Runner will be released on Ultra HD Blu-ray here coming up September 5th. I don't know if you have a birthday. Maybe this is the perfect gift for you. And it has been playing theatrically this year. It played at the Music Box back in March Mm -hmm. for its 35th anniversary. And I saw a comment from a film spotting listener on Twitter that they bought tickets to it coming up in their town. So maybe do some Google searches. It is apparently still playing out there and certainly would be worth seeing on the big screen. If you've seen Blade Runner and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. When we come
1: back, the film spotting poll will force us to retire replicant style, a beloved 1982 movie figure. Run, E.T., run! Stay with us if you can stomach it.
2: spotting is presented by film spotting listeners including at song warmonger been enjoying film spotting for a good few years now love your insightful intelligent film analysis guys as they say time to pay the dealer also jd our good friend from the In Session Film Podcast. Just wanted to say thanks for all the great content you guys continue
1: to provide each and every week. Lately, I've been listening to not just new shows, but I've also been listening to many of your 2007 episodes as we prepare for our 2007 retrospective on In Session Film. It's been really fun catching up with, well, at least Adam's thoughts on many of these films
2: that I'm sure we'll get to in our retrospective. So, best films of 2007, looking back at that great cinema year might just be an idea we have to steal for film spotting. Josh, thank you to all who supported the show this week and all of our monthly donors who keep us doing what we're doing. How old are you? 35. (laughs) 40. How much you weigh?
1: 165. Mm, Let's say 220 to be safe. Thank you so much for coming in.
2: Thank you. We'll get to our top five films of the year 1982 here in a moment with the help of the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. But first, a little golden brick spotting, Josh. We have been bemoaning the dearth of movies. Really, it's not so much that there probably aren't really good movies out there that are worthy of being in contention for our award that goes annually to an overlooked movie, non-mainstream movie made by a new filmmaker that shows some real promise and artistic vision. There's probably lots of options out there. We just haven't seen them, and we're trying to fill in some of those gaps, and we have two we're going to nominate now. You just heard actor and comedian Brett Gelman in the trailer for Lemon. That's from first-time feature director Janixa Bravo. The movie premiered back in January at Sundance, and it's currently available on most platforms for Rent On Demand. Josh, you saw it back in Sundance, and I get the sense that you are still wrestling with your reaction to the film. That's fair, but I definitely think it, deserves consideration
1: for Golden Brick. And just a little more background, Gelman's basically this pretty despicable schlub who's dumped by his live-in girlfriend, played by Judy Greer, at the beginning of this, and his career is going nowhere, and so he kind of goes into this downward spiral. I'm going to go against my philosophy here, Adam, of not letting a filmmaker tell me (laughs) what to think of their movie because, as I said, perplexed when I saw this at Sundance, kind of forgot about it, went to it hoping it would be a golden brick contender because it seemed to have those qualities Mm -hmm. and it just didn't really work for me. Well, Bravo was on the Represent podcast with Aisha Harris and Aisha said the same thing. She's like, listen, I don't like filmmakers to explain their movies to me, but I don't know what to do with Lemon. So can you at least tell me a little bit about what you were thinking about when you wrote this? And I believe she co-wrote it with Gelman. And I'm not going to go into exactly what she said, But I will ask viewers who go to see this to just keep in mind these films in the background, the Judd Apatow schlub films and those ilk, some of the more independent, maybe even mumblecore films that deal with similar male characters like this. Just kind of keep them in the background because Bravo talked about that, put it in the context of that genre, and it sort of unlocked the movie for me. And I think it might be a little bit brilliant. Now, you could (laughs) argue (laughs) – then normally I do argue, well, then the movie needs to do that work on its own, right? You don't need the filmmaker to tell you here's what it's really doing. But then again, maybe I was just being dense when I saw it in the rush of Sundance films. So want to throw it out there. Definitely one that people are going to have diverse reactions to.
2: Well, with that line of thinking, maybe you don't need three film critics to explain <laughs> what it's doing either.
1: This is, this is
2: why it's a dangerous road to go down. <laughs> well, I'm nominating Brigsby Bear. And Michael has seen this. And I think disagrees with my take a little bit on this film the director is dave mccary kyle mooney who i know from saturday night live is the co-writer and the star of this movie and i want to read to you the plot description of this film because while i don't want to give away too much about the movie i want people to go into it as i did really just waiting for surprises this is not at all what it ended up being is not at all what i expected based on this type of synopsis the show brigsby bear adventures is a children's television program produced for an audience of one james pope when the series abruptly ends pope's life changes forever as he sets out to finish the storyline himself when the series abruptly ends there's a lot of mm. of darkness and weirdness in that sentence or not in that sentence that the movie deals with that I can best describe. I'll give you some movies to think about when you watch Brigsby Bear. It's Be Kind Rewind by way of dog tooth and room. That sounds pretty perfect. It it might be, I think for some people. I'm not going to say it's perfect, but I am going to say I appreciated its its ambition, I suppose, with the tone and the way it tried to handle all those disparate tones. It's a very sweet movie, ultimately at its core, despite all that darkness. And I think it might be too sweet at sweet, times.
3: Gooey, yeah. corn syrupy, a little bit high fructosey.
2: And yet and yet it surprised me in that way. And despite really the absurdity of the entire storyline, I still found it, I suppose, kind of charming that I felt like the entire cast, made up of some really good comedic actors. You've got Mooney, you've got Michaela Watkins, formerly of SNL as well. They're playing it straight. They are taking on this subject matter without that little twinkle in their eye. And I guess that was enough for me to to win me over. I was yeah, I was surprised yeah, by not it.
3: Not a golden brick.
1: More of a bronze cinder block. Okay. Not a golden brick. <laughs> I'm just glad you didn't list Death to Smoochie among those. Haven't seen it. Haven't seen it. Yeah, not good.
2: Okay. <laughs> well, maybe it's because my, my lone big film school project, I made a movie about a guy dressed up in a dog suit and he refused to take it off. So see, it's just speaking to something inside <laughs> me as an artist. And that's really what's going on here with Brigsby Bear. I'd love to know what listeners think of this movie or of Lemon. If you've seen it, maybe you can make even more sense of it than Josh apparently has now. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Next week on the show... It will be a still-processing and maybe a still-terrified review of It, the adaptation of the Scary Clown Stephen King book. It opens next weekend, and Josh, you had a very good idea, though we'll have to make sure all the lights are fully on here in the studio and that I don't watch any of these clips ahead of time because I might have to cower under the studio board. We are going to do our top five Stephen King movie scares. And if you come out of the
1: It screening... Trembling, I will hold your hand through the entire recording of
2: that night's good, show. Good, I may need it. I may need that it. May scare it. you Michael, even will more. you be at the screening as well? Can you hold my hand?
3: I will. I will hold. Honestly, anything you got. <laughs> I, I think uh, whatever you need. Uh, that uh, when is the screening? By the way,
2: next. next week? I don't know. Next week sometime. Next week sometime. Tuesday <laughs> night. I think it's that on a Tuesday right. night.
3: It. Yes, No, I'll be there. there. No, I'd love. Seriously, you know, King is is is, born for the cinema. But it's been a while since
2: we've had a really good adaptation of his. What would you consider Mm -hmm. a really good King adaptation? I I think Carrie's wonderful. I think I think
3: Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. I love that movie. I mean, you know, a lot of people, anybody under the age of forty, a lot of them don't even know it. You know, I think it's. with the death of Toby Hooper this week, mm-hmm. I think it's a great time to, to
2: reinvestigate Salem's Lot, the new yeah. series version. <laughs> okay, well, we were going to get to Hooper, and we will have more in a minute, but he did direct Salem's Lot, and listeners on Twitter, ever since I threw that out— josh over the weekend this top five they've been suggesting that i relive my childhood traumas by watching salem's lot again that's not going to happen i don't need to it's so emblazoned it's on, on your list my already. brain floating it, children floating at the children window. at the window yes. I, i'm not watching salem's lot again but it will probably Actually, that was a beautiful
3: johnny mathis ballad from 1958 floating children <laughs> at the window
2: floating vampires with the yellow <laughs> eyes at the window i did throw out a little twitter poll because i started my homework and i was seeing okay what king adaptations have i not seen how have people ranked them is there any homework i need to do and i threw it out there to twitter but i kind of felt like i didn't really need to based on these films the only decently respected king adaptations that i haven't seen are even though i saw tons of scenes of it as a kid on tv back in 1984 children of the corn (laughs) didn't see it didn't see 1408 ah pretty good. recently pretty i've good. heard that's pretty good pretty more of good. a psychological thriller but supposedly scary It's good yeah, right it's effective. Scary. It's effective. and then yeah. this one shouldn't have been part of my poll question as some tweeters pointed out to me because it's really not scary but dolores claiborne hmm. starring yeah. miseries kathy bates those were the three big ones that i felt like maybe i should see i put it out on twitter i said which one of these should i see for sure I also gave the option, skip these, you're good. And that's what won it. 39% of Twitter followers of Film Spotting who voted said, I can just skip those three films. And that's probably what I'm going to do. I don't think I need to catch up with the children yeah, of the corn. Kind of for a stoner, this list.
3: It's kind of a stoner's attitude. Eh, skip it.
1: <laughs> you're good.
2: Yeah, I could change the channel if I win. Well, yeah, you no. have me pegged, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> you have me so pegged.
1: Well, the question, too, is like, which ones are going to offer up. A scary scene that right. could make, you know, it could be a, a bad movie. I mean, I remember being scared by Maximum Overdrive, which is generally ranked as maybe the worst King right. adaptation. But it depends when you saw it and if there might be a moment in it. I don't know. For me, it sounds like maybe I need to watch The Dead
2: Zone. Oh Is yeah. that going to have good some movie. scary scene options? It's funny that you say that because I've been wrestling with The Dead Zone, and the fact that I love the movie, so I want to include it on the list, I initially had put it into the category of Stephen King movies that I don't consider to be scary. Right. But the more I do think about at least one scene in particular, and how much it it unnerves me, might make my list. Okay, Good movie. Worth seeing. Well, it's Cronenberg, so... Definitely need and to fill that
1: Walken. blind spot, and maybe this will be a good way to do it. If you have a favorite
2: Stephen King movie scene or scare, leave us a voicemail, and we may use it on next week's show, 312-264-0744. You can also send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net with an MP3 file. We are in the midst of our new Argentine cinema marathon here on Film Spotting. If you're a subscriber to the show already in your podcast feed, you have heard our conversation about the third film in our marathon, Lucretia Martel's La Cienega, from 2001. The plot description simply, the life of two women and their families in a small provincial town in Argentina. Talk about a whole lot of darkness and things unsaid around that sentence. Mm -hmm. That's La Cienega. You can find out which platforms that film is available on from our website, filmspotting.net. Our partner for this marathon is... Movie, cult, classic, independent films from around the world every day. Movies experts introduce you to a film they love, and you have a whole month to watch it. So there are always 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. A little hint I'm going to give
1: for what listeners will be in for if they haven't heard that review already. I'm going to say there's some Sofia Coppola in there and some Luis Bunuel. Yes, Bunuel for sure. So yep. if you ever thought what those two things might look like together, <laughs> and obviously other things will be get into in the review, but that's what awaits in La Cienega. Listeners of Film Spotting, you can try movie free for a month. Just go to MUBI.com.
2: That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. A couple of highlights from MUBI's offerings right now. Brooks, Meadows, and Lovely Faces from 2016. It's one of their special discoveries by an Egyptian auteur, Yusri Nasrallah, which deftly weaves between drama, comedy, and subtle political insight in a warm and colorful social tapestry. And... They, of course, playing along with our new Argentine Cinema Marathon. Their series is ongoing. Alejo Moishansky's The Parrot and the Swan from 2013, After 12 from 2014, and Ostende, director Laura Citorella's debut film, also available now over at MUBI. Up next for us, we will get to another film from Lucretia Martel, her 2008 movie, The Headless Woman. For the full lineup and viewing options, just go to filmspotting.net and click on Marathons. A quick Marathon-related note. I thought it might be fun to fit in here. We've heard from a few listeners recently who've been working their way through the film spotting archive, some we've shared in our donation segment, and there's some others who we had no idea were going through the entire catalog of shows, but multiple people sending us the same note because they're coming across this show, and apparently it's like a time machine. Josh, way back in 2007, I made a promise about something that would happen here in 2017 on the show. Prophecy. Yeah, prophecy. It hasn't happened yet. And it's probably not going to happen. Zane DeVault is one of the listeners who writes, I've been listening to your show on and off for a long while, but earlier this year I decided to scratch my OCD itch and go back to the beginning to listen to every episode. Back somewhere around episode 70, Adam and Sam were discussing why they wouldn't be reviewing the new Harry Potter movie and mentioned that we'd have to wait until 2017 for the harry potter marathon Mm. i just checked the marathon page and couldn't find a reference to it so it must be scheduled for after new argentine cinema
1: there's no way you were serious about that when you said it well we'll we'll get to that in a moment josh (laughs) we got another bit of feedback here this one comes from algard norway alexander waldemar who i met not in norway but at the london meetup really yeah alexander was did he come all the way from norway no he was in england at the time okay i'm not impressed yeah Sorry, Alexander. (laughs) Anyways, he says, just listen to Cinecast episode 83, where Adam promised a Harry Potter marathon in 2017. So when is this happening? You already did a Fast and the Furious marathon, and I feel like you owe it to the people who have been waiting since 2006 for this. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on the cinematic qualities of prepubescent boys and girls running around shouting pseudo-Latin at each
2: other. (laughs) Okay, so I did go into the archive because I was... Dying to fill in some blanks here. I don't remember making this promise at all or why it even would have come up. And I think it was actually in sort of a year look ahead, maybe. And it was the film Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix coming out in 2007 that We were saying, no, sorry, we're not going to review it. And then, it turns out, in July 2007, episode 168 of the show, this is the show description. When Adam and Sam announced earlier this spring that they were going to skip Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, as they had every Potter film since the series debut back in 01, film-spotting listeners started a campaign of sorts to convince the host that the series, starting with the Alfonso Cuaron-directed third film, Prisoner of Azkaban, was worth catching up with. Adam dutifully brought himself up to speed. Sam remained in the dark, both treaded skeptically into phoenix but at least one of them was greatly rewarded for his effort so i've already actually done the marathon of sorts i think the only one of the harry potter films i still have not seen i don't think i ever bothered to see that second one the other chris columbus effort and i'm good with that i thought you were going to say the second one of the final two no we we We, talked about it on the show i'm just gonna leave it go we reviewed that on the show some of these have been discussed including phoenix so i did my homework sam didn't Order of the Phoenix ended up being my favorite film of the entire Harry Potter series. Really? Well, yes. I'm going to go with a conventional
1: choice, Azkaban. I don't know that I'm on board for a marathon. I'm not quite as snobby <laughs> no as point. you and Sam were. There's no like, point. I'm not watching Chris whole Columbus. franchise from the beginning. I know we were, idiots. but I do. I do wonder how much you'd rediscover in doing that. You know, the, these are films that. I've mostly appreciated for the production design and the actors doing – the great British thespians doing things on the side. Uh, I think
2: they're all pretty much good films. But a marathon? Mm. Hmm. Yeah. No. That's not going to happen. I'm going to put it out there right now. You can just do a very quiet marathon of the pauses Alan
3: Rickman would deploy between (laughs) the second-to-last word in a sentence – and the
1: last word. Now that sounds like fun. You're that, saying he was formulaic in those. No, no, I, I seriously I
3: love them, but nobody had more fun with pauses. You could you could <laughs> you could actually you could rent one of the pauses, move in for a month.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, if you are listening to the archives, sure. and really I don't know why you would unless you were being tortured, and you find any other decade old, unfulfilled promises, you can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. All twelve plus years of the show are available in the archives at our website, filmspotting.net. It's true, we used to be called Cinecast, and we had to change the name because Michael refused to come on the show until we got a better name. So, <laughs> Such a diva. Now you know the history.
0: Yeah. E.T. Home Phone. E.T. Phone Home. E.T. Phone Home. E.T. Phone Home. He wants to call somebody.
2: E.T., you can phone a friend, but I'm not sure it's going to help. A few weeks back, we were looking ahead to this week's show. We posed a little 1982 deathmatch to you. E.T. versus Blade Runner. Drew Barrymore there with Henry Thomas in that Steven Spielberg classic E.T. Not just the highest-grossing movie of 82, but of the entire 1980s. It's one of the most beloved films of all time. So in this deathmatch, where only one of these films will continue to exist for future generations to enjoy, Naturally, it was going to be ET in a walk, right Josh? Mhm. ET only received 36% of the
1: vote. I mean, not only did ET lose, but this is ridiculous. 64% going to Blade Runner? Yeah.
2: No.
3: The, the I Forces know. of Darkness
2: crush the forces <laughs> What is this all about they did? This whole poll question by the way for us and I think a good chunk of our audience really intense, really tough. Michael's over here like, "Meh." <laughs> They're both okay. I mean,
3: get rid of them both. <laughs> no, I'll be I feel more strongly about that. But no, put Close Encounters in there. Now we got to, right. you know, that's... Yeah, I I've, Anyway, let's not discuss it.
1: <laughs> for, for listeners as distraught as I am, I know rules are that the losing film gets destroyed. I'm hanging on to one copy. I'm going to take it with me into the bunker. <laughs> okay.
2: And it will be preserved. Okay. Good to know. Faith Johnson says, this is perhaps one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. Both films are very dear to me. Ultimately, I went with Blade Runner. While I do think E.T. is a transcendent film, I know much of my love for it is all wrapped up in childhood nostalgia.
1: Mm, Revisit it, Faith. Francisco Silva from
2: Lisbon, Portugal
1: says it has to be Blade Runner not only due to the obvious visual and mood influence on much of the science fiction cinema that followed it, including Spielberg's AI, but also being one of those rare films that becomes an argument starter. Any two people seeing Blade Runner will have different opinions about it, from what version to watch, how to interpret the ending, which ending is true, who is and isn't a replicant, and what kind of replicant they are. Sounds familiar. The discussion around it transcends plot and goes to the art of film making and the author's authority over his work et is also nice <laughs> his finger lights up Yay. Oh, that's, that's oh, some good shade. Dismissive. Who killed the child in you, Francis? Dismissive. I love dismissive. it.
3: Peter Nesson says, I am shocked Blade Runner is winning so easily. Hell, we don't even know which version they are voting for, except for Mood. The movie suffers somewhat from Ridley Scott's philosophical meanderings. E.T., however, well, that's pure entertainment. Who cares if it's, in essence, a kid's movie? It's a Pantheon-worthy kid's movie. It is iconic, and if I need to live without a movie for the rest of my life, I'll lose the downer
2: and keep... The Heartlight. Okay. Jeff Gibson in Olympia, Washington, closes us out. Having rewatched Blade Runner recently, I've seen all four of five versions. I can say, as worthy of respect as it is, it's overrated. I vote E.T. all the way. The score, the final scene, the quotable dialogue. This poll is like deciding between your heart or your mind. Blade Runner is certainly intelligent and visually influential, but I'm never as emotionally engaged with Deckard and the replicants. That's my next band's name, by the way, as I am with Elliot and E.T., I vote with my heart. Good choice, Jeff. Okay. There it is. E.T., gone forever unless you are going to join Josh in the bunker. What else will be in the bunker? I mean, not movie-wise, but... I've I've never been as disturbed by a poll result as this, so there there will be others where I'll break the rules. Well, I wonder if you'll be disturbed By this next poll and the results, because I have a feeling that your number one choice is probably not going to be where it's going to come out. Michael, we are looking ahead to the new film from Darren Aronofsky. Do you do you want to give the title a shot? Because Josh and I had differing takes on it last week.
3: Mother. (laughs) What? Another question. That's a question. Mother. Let me try it again. (laughs) Mother.
1: There you go. See, see, that seemed like more of a question. They don't teach punctuation
2: anymore i actually
3: uh i have a bootleg and it's just called ma so
2: (laughs) it's got jennifer lawrence javier bardem ed harris michelle pfeiffer it looks fairly creepy i think that's fair to say and we'll find out here in a second aronofsky one of those directors through six features i think arguably hasn't made a bad film but then again i haven't seen noah so i'm not sure that i can fully answer that question are Question to you, very simply: What is Darren Aronofsky's best film? And we are going in chronological order here with your options. So that means you can choose from *Pi*,
1: *Requiem for a Dream*, *The Fountain*, *The Wrestler*, *Black Swan*, or
2: *Noah*. Okay, his best film, Michael. Where do you come out?
3: Uh, *Black Swan*. Okay, his biggest film, and his—I think—I think it's the one I like the
1: best. Good choice. Yeah. Josh, The Fountain? Black Swan, it's between The Fountain and Requiem for a dream Mm -hmm. for me. Black Swan, I need to revisit, did not
2: entirely get on its vibe the first time. And I know I'm probably alone on that. No, not alone. Definitely. It was a divisive film, but I was in on Black Swan. If I was going to rank them, I thought about this today. I'll go real quick. Requiem is still at number one. I think that I probably, well, I might actually have Pi second, Hmm. but I have not seen it since it came out or when it came out on home video. Black Swan would be next, The Wrestler after that, The Fountain. And I like The Fountain, but it would be last of those five. And Noah, haven't seen.
3: Noah? Well, you should say... <laughs> I suppose I'll see that again sometime. But, really? Noah, yeah, no, I mean, it's not dismissible. And a lot of it's kind of weirdly compelling. Did
1: we review that one together? Yeah, on but show, it's, Michael, it's, I think it's did, a little yeah.
3: nerds. You know, it's a little it nerds. It
1: has issues and yeah it's it's worth seeing because it's unique as a bible epic absolutely
3: right. what
2: you'd expect from arnofsky yeah it's a
3: squirrely bible epic yeah movie. of
2: course i'm i'm going with requiem as my number one answer because i just want to stick with that i'm certainly not going to revisit requiem for a dream and actually that's probably not true i'll break down at some point but that for me has always been yeah, on my one-timer's go. list it is such a rough go that i don't know if i have the stamina to go through that trauma again, but I remember really appreciating that film when I saw it back in theaters. We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave some feedback, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Speaking of feedback, one last little bit here. We got an email from Alex with a couple images in it that did catch my eye. Alex writes, first time writing into the podcast, but longtime listener. I was wondering if I could get your two cents about the possibility of Darren Aronofsky's mother being a secret remake of Rosemary's Baby tied in with the fact that the director has come out saying he wants the audience to know nothing about the film before seeing it. I'm always concerned when a film relies on not knowing a twist or surprise before going in. Love the show. Now, he's not just basing it on that little bit of information that Aronofsky's being mysterious and that the trailer really gives nothing away. He sent over the movie posters and the mother... Movie poster is a straight ripoff of Rosemary's Baby. Ooh, like one of, beyond just one of the, great movie the normal ripoffs, of it's, it's absolutely wow. taken right from Rosemary's Baby. Yeah. And so is it possible that we've got the Ruth Gordon role being played by, by Michelle Pfeiffer? I don't know. I hope not.
3: I mean, I, I hope I hope he's got something more interesting up his sleeve than that. Seriously, I do. I, I just you know, I, it, we all know we all know Rosemary's Baby pretty well, which is talk about a film that holds up very nicely. Oh, love and, it! I mean, it's almost an unduplicatable tone, and Polanski turned out to be the right person, you know, to to bring that material to life. But yeah, if you look at the posters, they, we will
2: post this over at filmspotting.net. That's it. Yeah. So you look Looks at my mother, familiar. And you look at Rosemary's Baby. Yep. I mean. Uh, I like the sitcom version better. Ma!
0: (laughs) There's one more thing. A terrible presence is in there with her. So much rage. So much betrayal. I've never sensed anything like it. I don't know what hovers over this house but it was strong enough to punch a hole into this world and take your dog away from you.
2: The unmistakable voice of Zelda Rubinstein as the eccentric medium Tangina in 1982's Poltergeist. Poltergeist director, so to speak, Toby Hooper, passed away over the weekend. He was 74. It is a long-held belief that actually Steven Spielberg, who was a producer on that film, actually directed much of the film, but something contractually or whatever was keeping him from... Technically, being the director, Toby Hooper stepped in and was on set, but most have contested that it's actually a Spielberg effort. Nevertheless, whether Toby Hooper directed Poltergeist or not, no one disputes that he is the director of one of the most influential horror films of all time 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oof. A good film.
3: Yeah, scared me. I, mean, I yeah. didn't didn't see it for years. It scared it me out. when
2: I saw it for the first time in two thousand five. Yeah.
3: And a lot of it, I think, a lot of it back in seventy four when when I was not seeing it. Uh, when, but but a lot of my raver horror movie friends were were seeing it at age thirteen, fourteen, sneaking into the drive in. But that title alone was so vicious. You know, yeah. when you think, there weren't that many titles like that out there, even on the grindhouse you know, exploitation drive in circuit. But when you see the movie now. It, and you and you're, you're kind of amazed how little, really nasty gore there is in it, but there's a ton of dread, and what mm-hmm. violence there is in it is really rough. But uh, it is absolutely three steps above so much else. That and I vastly prefer Texas Chainsaw, and also be beyond before that the the movie that really influenced it the most, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead, so much more than a big budget. Big studio bid for the same audience. The Exorcist, you know, a film I I constantly
2: please don't get Josh going. I
3: argue with people on, I, all the time. This but is I, why it's
1: always <laughs> such a pleasure to have you on the show,
2: Michael.
3: No, I whatever. <sighs> just but making it, a note here. You know, and they're all you know very low in many ways. All three of those movies are very low intentioned. You know, they're very they're just trying to trying to get you get the screw in your gut as as, as hard as, as you can, but. T- the The last thirty seconds of of chainsaw i think hmm. sent me sent me out on the most destabilizing <laughs> note of
2: like it's uh, a good word
3: happy uh, sad there 's a survivor but she 's clearly lost her mind because of the trauma she 's just been through and there 's leatherface who 's lost this round but he 's doing his little dance of death uh, against the Texas sunrise, and yeah. it's a new day, and, you know, <laughs> he's just one of God's creatures enjoying a new day, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a rough, it's a really rough mixed, no, and I'll, I'll never forget it.
1: Well, and you can flip that story, too, regarding Poltergeist and say, obviously there are Spielbergian touches all over that film, but there's also Texas Chainsaw Massacre touches. I mean, there is an insidiousness to Poltergeist. We'll talk about Poltergeist a little bit Good. more in a bit,
2: but yeah. I think you can see plenty of Hooper there as well. Well, we are going to talk about Poltergeist, it seems, as we get to our top five films of 1982, of course, the year that Blade Runner was released. And we're going to do this a little bit differently than we normally structure our top fives. We're not just going to go around the circle here, counting down five to one. We have five slots to fill. We have 11 movies that make up those five slots. So there is some overlap. But there are some outliers. In fact, there are seven outliers. And we're going to get to those first after we take care of just a little bit of business, Josh. I had Blade Runner at number three. You had Blade Runner at number three. So we're just going to throw that out there right now. Blade Runner in the top five. Michael's going to be the black sheep here who is not going to be part of that little replicant party. Doesn't love it enough. It's so on
3: my honorable mention list, man. Okay. I mean, you know, more of a
2: participation I'll trophy. Take that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that Blade Runner though on ours.
1: Did we cover everything? I mean, I, I, th- I had
2: more notes. Yeah, I had a lot yeah, more notes. Maybe the actually. only thing
1: I'd, I'd throw out there, and we mentioned Daryl Hannah, how, how good she is, but didn't really get into it. Maybe from I've seen of her, her best performance. It's very gleeful. This this sort of malevolent replicant that she plays, who's enjoying her superpowers, I guess that she has, and uh, this sort of lethal acrobat almost imagine that she'd fit in as one of joker's goons you know sure. especially the jack nicholson vision of the joker could see her right mm-hmm. alongside there so
2: i think she's fantastic in blade runner Yeah, she really is so now we get to those outliers and michael you're all alone on this 1982 island start us off give us your number five my number five is moonlighting which is a film, I don't know if you guys have seen this. No, this is, always wanted to because I love Jeremy Irons.
3: This is Jersey Skolomowski's very sly black comedy. It's set in 1981, and the, and the premise is this. A Polish government official has bought a flat in London, right, just before the Polish government's ban on the Solidarity Movement back home. And the owners of the flat remodeling the place are gutting it. They have a Polish construction crew headed by an English-speaking pole played by Jeremy Irons. And when the coup takes place back home, it's in the best interest of getting this job done, Irons' character figures, to keep this news about the coup uh, a secret from his co-workers. And from there, this comedy follows the foreman as he just kind of devolves into this desperate situation. He's shoplifting, he's scheming, he's finagling, he's falling in love, you know, more or less. And I just I had never at the time when I was 21. I remember remember going being home from college, going down to Chicago with my folks, going out to dinner, and hey, I saw a movie on Siskel and Ebert recommended. Never really heard about anything like it, but my mom said, "Ooh, Jeremy Irons, he's dreamy." Uh-huh. I think, oh, "Let's go, let's let's go see the movie Michael wants to see." So I drug him into the Fine Arts Theater and. You know, my mom and dad were kind of like Nipper the dog, you know, looking with that cocked head, at his master's voice like, huh? You know, what did we just see? But And I wasn't really that much clearer on kind of what I'd just seen. But I'd never seen a movie that was that kind of deft in this mixture of comedy and drama. And, uh, you know, and I'll tell you, that movie's got a lot to say about about – uh, you know all the stuff we now associate with just sort of the EU and all these countries mm-hmm. in crisis and fluid borders and exploited cheap labor going to other countries to kind of just, just to survive you know this movie really speaks to the future which is of course the present before
0: we left customs checked all our luggage that bag contained hammers drills and an axe today is the fifth of on December 1981 also, Black
1: Market exchanges one pound sterling for well over 1,000 lottes, the average weekly wage. I landed in London
0: with 1,200 pounds in my pocket, a sum that would have taken me 25
2: years to earn. Yeah, as I said, it's been a regret of mine for a long time because of that appreciation for irons and hearing so many good things about the director as well. I'm going to get to one of my outliers. This is my number Four pick, And as we said, we're dancing around a little bit. You don't have to follow along here. If you want to reference our lists in numerical order later, you can do that. Just go to filmspotting.net and click on lists. But my number four is a movie you mentioned in your setup to Blade Runner, Michael. It is John Carpenter's The Thing, a remake of the Howard Hawks film from the 50s, I believe. It was my number one monster movie from June 2011 here on the show. And from April 2014, my number two thing from space. That came to destroy us. And according to an IndieWire article I came across today, the first director considered to make this remake of the thing, Toby Hooper, uh, apparently. Uh, but yeah. John Carpenter, of course, ended up making it. And another it too fun gory fact. For, it was too gory for Toby Hooper. <laughs> maybe. Another fun fact in that article Carpenter had come off making Elvis on TV with Kurt Russell, I think, in 79, and then in 81 had done Escape from New York, and so he said, I don't want to get stuck in a rut here with Kurt Russell. I don't think I'm going to cast him as McCready, and someone talked him out of it. Maybe he just came to his senses, and he cast Kurt Russell, and thankfully he did because it's one of my favorite Kurt Russell performances. I've said it before about this movie, but you talk about my favorite word, stakes. This is all of humanity, potentially, despite the fact that it takes place in this frozen tundra out away from the rest of the civilized world, you know that if this creature, which is constantly assimilating and you know there really is no stopping it, it will just be too late for humanity at some point. And I think... What I really love about the film is even scarier than the monster itself is the sense of distrust and paranoia that pervades this group. The humans themselves are scarier than that monster, and the ending, to me, feels more relevant than ever and more suspenseful, maybe. Just that, that end scene, without spoiling it, two guys sitting there waiting each other out is more terrifying in some ways than anything else in the movie. Briggsby Bear mentioned Earlier in the show, as a Golden Brick candidate, a teen in that movie who is a filmmaking aficionado has a thing poster. Thing
3: poster. That film was seriously nervy, and I think a lot of people should should take a look at it if they don't remember exactly how the effects and the go- and the and the gore, which is considerable, works in that film because this is pre digital, of course, mm-hmm. and and it's all very practical effects like Stan Winston and his collaborator Rob Bottin. I think. Yeah, these are this is old quote old school effects but it's also kind of thanks to romero and a lot of other filmmakers kind of a new level of gore but i would say it's truly intelligently deployed Mm -hmm. extreme gore and it's one of the movies you can point to and say you know not all
2: extreme gore is created equal and creates an equal effect well said michael and please continue as we are now ready for another outlier your number four film of 82
3: my number four is the verdict directed by Sidney lumet from a script by david mamet and it stars Paul Newman as the alcoholic uh, attorney who's got one shot at redemption with this, with this sort of long shot court case. And it's really a courtroom drama in many ways. And it's, um, you know, for Mamet, it's an unusually tightly plotted picture based on a novel um, it's a film. I wasn't really sure which way I was. Thinking, you know, I enjoyed it at the time. Although I, even at the, even as a pop, I thought this is one nasty movie toward women. I mean, there's like one of the big, kind of arguably audience baiting moments is kind of the most galling and unconscionable. It's when the Newman character just hauls off and clocks the woman who he's been sleeping with, who's Charlotte t- Rampling. T- yeah, Charlotte Rampling, who turns out to be kind of a double dealer for the other side of this legal fight, right? Um, it's kind of a, it's a very queasy-making mm-hmm. moment at best. But, uh, um, but that film, in almost every other respect, has, has aged extremely well. And I think Newman's performance and just the way that courtroom summation is handled by Lumet, I think a lot, of, a lot of what I liked about Lumet as a filmmaker in the early days, 12 Angry Men and all kinds of things, you know, he's really kind of retained... How how do you handle a performance and how do you kind of serve a story with a very unobtrusive camera and a, but with a real eye toward toward performance detail? It's it's one of Newman's best performances.
0: Yeah. I'm an attorney. I'm trial before the bar representing my client. My client. You open your mouth, you're losing my case for me. Now listen to me. No, you listen to me. All I want on this trial was a fair shake.
1: Okay, push me into court five days early. I lose my star witness, and I can't get a continuance, and I don't care. I'm going up there, I'm going to try it, I'm going to let the jury decide. You know,
0: they told me about you, said you're a hard ass, you're a defendant's judge. Well, I don't
3: care. I said to hell with it, to hell with it.
0: Look, Alvin,
3: many years ago. (laughs) Come on. Hey, don't give me that shit about you being a lawyer, too. I know about you. You
0: couldn't hack it as a lawyer. You were a bag man for the boys downtown, and you still are. I know about you. Are you
2: done? You're damn right I'm done.
3: And he got zoomed out at the Oscars by Ben Kingsley, the only uh, survivable element of Richard Attenborough's film Gandhi. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you couldn't stop Gandhi that year. And it's funny because it's not a
2: movie that we seem to be talking about much tonight. No, no. I'm guessing it's not going to come up. Of course, my excuse is I never saw it, but I'm not in a hurry to see it. You never saw Gandhi? No, I didn't. So and we no one's do, giving me a reason to. We yeah.
1: often do the top five we would have named in 82, Yeah, even though I was, what, like eight? Probably would have been Gandhi because that was one of the first grown-up movies yeah, I was taken to. Right? Oh, really, so, really. so I thought, like, I'm really seeing something here. And I remember it felt that, you know, that immensity to me then for sure. But... I have not felt the need to revisit it. The scenes
3: I've seen more recently, uh, Kingsley's performance is really, really good. And it's the only really, really good element
2: of the entire picture. Hmm. Josh, finally, you get to make another pick. Your number five.
1: My number five will return briefly here for a little bit more poltergeist talk. That's where I have it at number five. And, you know, what were Hooper's contributions? Well, I think you can point to some of the personal nature of the scares here. Spielberg. He's done monsters, right? Like Jaws and the dinosaurs, and, and those are all larger creatures. And there's something, just like Texas Chainsaw, there's an intimacy to the violence there. Think about that clown. That terrifying clown, yeah. which is personal because it's a toy and also because it's wrapping itself around that poor little kid the clown made It was my number three terrifying I movie character, Adam, on episode 419. <laughs> so clearly I saw this film when I was way too young, and it did do a number on me. But revisiting it since, I do think it holds up. Now, looking at it as a Spielberg film, the flip side to E.T., set in another suburb, you can clearly see how this is coming a little bit from the dark underbelly of his id, because we have suburbia turned inside out here. Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson, another family that we're in the midst of and we intimately get to know in this suburban dream home that has been unwisely built over ancestral burial grounds. There's also this element about the disturbed spirit speaking through the television, and what a brilliant touch that is, not only as a visual, but also as this prescient sense of the way television may come to rip the American family <laughs> apart. I mean, this is this is something that people were wrestling with in 82, how TV is going to change family dynamics when it became such an integral part of the nuclear American family. And um, yeah, I mean, just think about the evil spirits coming through The Bachelor nowadays, Michael. This was like just letting us know what was on the way. So
2: I've always loved Poltergeist and I probably saw it way too young as well. And I agree. I think what I've seen of it recently, never watched it in its entirety, but whenever it comes on, I'm always struck by how much it holds up. It's a very smart satire of that 80s time when you have those two characters in Craig T. Nelson and Joe Beth Williams, they come off as people who they're, they're baby boomers. They probably lived through the 60s and were fighting the good fight for peace and love against the Vietnam War. And you know what? When it came time to start a family... They they joined it. They, they became part of the establishment and they were willing to do whatever it took. Now, maybe they didn't know what they, they were doing when they built that house. But they still but they, smoke pot. That's the one. Exactly. The, the that's 160s, what I'm saying. Yeah, the yeah, they sneak room. into the bedroom and they smoke a little pot. They still get a little high. But at the end of the day, all they really care about, it would seem, is that perfect dream home, regardless of what the costs are there. So I Love Poltergeist almost made my list. All right. We're going to have a few more outliers from 1982
1: after the break. I think this is where Adam's Porky's pick is yeah, probably going for to sure. come in. Yeah. Then we're going to get to some consensus choices for the best of that year. The film spotting top five continues in a moment. Stay with us.
0: There are mountains in our way, but we climb the every day. Love is- Oh my- Tell me what I want to hear. I want your D-O-R. No, sir. I want your D-O-R. I ain't gonna quit. Spell it. D-O-R. I ain't gonna quit. Yeah, then you can be free, and you and your daddy can get drunk and go hole-chasing together, huh? No, sir. D-O-R. I ain't gonna quit. All right, then you can forget it. You're out. Don't you do it. Don't you. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere
2: else to go- We get back into our top five films of 82 countdown with that clip from an officer and a gentleman, a movie I loved in the 1980s and watched constantly. I could have finished that clip for you. Zach Mayo's quote, Richard Gere there in that scene, with the proper inflection, uh, without re-listening to it, Michael. Wow. That's how many times I saw an officer and a gentleman, and he was going up against Louis Gossett Jr., who won an Oscar, that year, Best Supporting Actor for yeah. that film. Now, we were reading an article. You did a little bit of writing in the Tribune about the films of 1982, yeah,
0: looking
3: back on it. I don't like your dismissive it. tone. So I a little bit of writing. Up. A little, a little a bit of writing. A little something. It felt
2: a little cavalier to me. What can I say? <laughs> But I I enjoyed it. I especially enjoyed hearing about your first viewing experience oh of an God, officer I, and a gentleman. So I, I, I wonder if you'd share. I, I go
3: I go home to West Caldwell, New Jersey with my then-girlfriend, Lori Grossman. And, you know, we we go to the movies with her her parents, uh, Herb and Marsha, and uh, her grandparents, <laughs> uh, Izzy and Fanny. Right? We, I mean, tootsie, You're making these names up, right? Grandparent
2: I'm not, no, I'm not.
1: grandparent names. <laughs> to, to, uh, so tootsie, You're protecting the innocent. To,
3: tootsie's sold out. So we got an well, officer and gentleman. will be fine. Okay, fine. Well the sex scene comes in. And and for the time it's it's not particularly racy, but it's 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 a it's a little rough. And I'm sitting next to to Grandma Fanny. And and, and she starts monologuing. It's like the post show discussion moved to the middle of the show, to the screening, right? And she was just like, Oh my god, oh no, no, oh no, my God. My God. You know, and she's not, it was just like this low murmur and I, I really clenched up in the uh, everywhere and uh, i never really relaxed uh, and the and eventually the relationship dissolved
2: you know uh, <laughs> over the screen i can't imagine that we've all sad. been there, though. I don't know with Grandma Fanny, but we've <laughs> right. all been there. <laughs> I was, didn't know there was a way an officer and a gentleman could be worse. Oh, I think you just described don't it, hurt Michael. Me. I think it, you just described so, uh, uh, so it. So it good. is
3: disheartening that Adam likes such a. Oh, dumb I love. Movie. It. Uh, although De- Deborah Winger's fantastic.
2: Deborah I mean. Winger's fantastic. David Keith is fantastic. That's Richard Gere is fantastic. No, 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 Gere's
3: no, fantastic. no, no, no. Richard Gere's not fantastic.
1: Terrible. He's no. awful. And Gossett Junior. What? What's disturbing to me about that movie? Sugar Britches. What? What's with Sugar Britches? Is that? Isn't you that heard that they, a lot in the '80s, Josh. Really? Oh yeah. I think the only well, time Josh, I ever heard it I think was Josh, an officer Josh, and a gentleman. Josh particularly
3: would have heard a lot that a lot. <laughs> exactly.
0: <in the> <laughs> 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 no.
1: What, what is that going mean? on? What's,
3: no, I don't. Know. That <laughs> movie's junk. It doesn't take it place. It is on, not. It's science fiction. It's it's like whatever you can enjoy it, I guess, but only for Debra Winger for me.
2: Well. I, I'm stuck as a seven-year-old watching that film being Seven? being just blown away by it. Oh, yeah. Seven. Yeah. It was it was full of yeah, mysteries, R-rated, Michael. Who's
3: letting you into the R-rated movies? My, at my parents,
2: they, they just let me watch HBO. <sighs> <sighs> they Iowa, just let me watch Iowa, HBO. <laughs> Iowa. I was a latchkey kid. Iowa. They weren't paying attention to me at just all, just roaming Michael. Over Iowa. So, I mean, look how well I turned out. <laughs> we get back into our top five of 82 countdown with that clip, with that officer and a gentleman dismissal and i wanted to set the list up a little bit more we'll recap briefly though our choices because we're a few picks in. we've each actually made two choices even if we've gone about it in a really roundabout way so let's reveal those again here now josh your two picks
1: yeah so i named my number five poltergeist and my number three
2: blade runner michael the, my number five moonlighting and my number four the verdict and my number four was john carpenter's the thing and i'm with josh on Blade Runner at number three. So a couple more outliers before we get to four movies that made at least two of our lists. We did not have a movie make all three of our lists. A little bit surprised about that. But first, I wanted to reference an article from Alan Sepinwall I found, I think from 2015. Uprocks.com had their writers describe what they thought the best year in cinema was. And Alan Sepinwall actually took up the mantle For eighty-two, he said it has the best kids movie ever. You can guess which one he's thinking of there. It has perhaps the best comedy ever. That's going to come up here in a moment. It has the best movie about young men grappling with adulthood. Michael, that movie would be Diner. It has perhaps the best comedy about high school social mores. Fast
3: Times, Fast Times at Ridgemont
2: High. High. It definitely has the best teen stoner character in Sean Penn's Jeff Spicoli. Alan writes. It gave us the best Star Trek movie by far. Sorry, Josh in Wrath of Khan. Just about to talk about that one. Okay, time. well, we're leading Whoa. up to it. The best of the Rocky sequels in Rocky 3 I'm no. sure that's your number one. No. I'm sure that's your number one, Michael. Oh, A design of the future in Blade Runner, the nearly every sci-fi movie since has been trying to copy. We discussed that earlier in the show. The movie and the scene that made Eddie Murphy into a superstar. It's true. In 48 hours, in Sophie's Choice, Meryl Streep's best dramatic performance and with The Verdict on your list, Michael mm-hmm. Paul Newman's best performance Seven Wall. Argue. So, he he does make a pretty good case for 82 as a pretty good Film year, and we're going to see if some of those choices do come up here in our final picks. We are at another one of yours, Michael. You're number three. Number three. I, I'm I'm with Alan Seppenwall. I think Star
3: Trek Two. Don't the, do it, Michael. Yes, Star yes. Trek Two. Colon. Yes, Star oh, Trek Two. This colon, almost makes up for the Exorcist. Oh, colon, and a, a Gentleman. Colon. The Wrath of Khan. I, I I love that film. I love it. Why? I, I think it's the it's the it's still the most entertaining Star Trek picture. Yep. And I've, I've liked a lot um, of them, old and new, but I, Nicholas Meyer directed it. it. It feels like a good, fast, medium-weight blockbuster that's not trying to eat you alive or just set up the next movie. It's the, only, it's the movie where William Shatner mysteriously becomes a real actor in the last yes. 10 minutes.
1: I'm, well, Well, <laughs> okay. I'm doing something I've How, never done. I'm shutting the, Josh's mic off. What's the up. running time on Wrath of Khan? <laughs> I'm actually shutting Josh's a, mic off. So 10 minutes of decent acting no, gets you in the top uh, five uh, of yeah. the yep. year.
3: Look, yep. Monte, Ricardo Montalban makes up for oh. all the rest. He's great in that. So, yes. Yeah, so
1: interesting is. we talk about Blade Runner. Because and it quotes, it quotes Moby Dick. You have a villain in Blade Runner who is so much more overacting in some scenes to a purpose, whereas Monteban is just ridiculous. There's two different movies also, to compare them. This Khan is so much more ponderous than yeah. Blade Runner <sighs> about its existential leanings. Sure. It's so full of itself. Disagree.
2: Disagree. Absolutely full of itself. He's got he's got revenge on his mind, and that's powerful. Really? Yeah, that's I a wouldn't powerful have job. that up. <laughs> I'm with you, Michael. I,
3: it's not, you know, I just, it's, it, for me, it's just pure enjoyment, you know, and, and I'm not even that much of a Star Trek freak, you know, but it's, I, I think that film, uh, it, it doesn't have the panache visually of some of the, some of the later ones, the more recent ones, which I've enjoyed, and it doesn't really have the ponderousness God knows of the, the one Robert Wise directed, the first one, which, I mean, that first, that first approach to the mm-hmm. Enterprise in the first movie, I f- feel like that scene has not yet ended. <laughs> Maybe and, not. And the second one, like, like all that wiped away. I just thought, this is it.
2: This is, this is how you make one of these. Well done, Michael. Can we move on Well now? done. <laughs> we can. Though now we're just going to have Michael make fun of me, so I'm not sure why this is a good idea, but we're actually going to my number one film of 1982. Speaking of being stuck in nostalgia mode and a movie I saw probably as an eight-year-old on TV and watched incessantly. It's been in the penalty box over the years here on the show because I've talked about it so much, but if we're making the films of 82 list... I can't not put The World According to Garp at number one. Robin Williams in that film directed by George Roy Hill. It was actually my number two movie of the entire 80s on an old top five wow. here on the show. And the question I posted on Letterbox when I watched this film most recently back in 2015 was, what do you say about a movie that feels like a part of you? That's, that's how I feel about this movie. I just watched it constantly as a kid I was drawn to it and I go into a lot more detail about this on the Cinephiliacs podcast with Peter Labuza mm. we talk about this movie for at least 30 minutes if you want to seek that out I'll put the link to it in our show notes at filmspotting.net if you want really just the, the quick Cliff's Notes version of it all the subjects I'm most passionate about now are all there on display in Garp, talking about movies and and art in general that deals with the role of the artist in the creative process, mortality, certainly, constructing narratives. You've got lots of blurred lines between reality and fantasy. And in terms of something I relate to now as a parent, the movie is very much based on the John Irving book, which I also love very much about the constant state of dread that a parent lives in. And Robin Williams certainly captures that in the movie. Something about the sexual politics of the movie and the cultural politics of it as an eight-year-old, I obviously didn't understand, but that just made me want to watch the movie more and try to understand it and what was driving these characters. So one of the things I think about and one of the things I asked on that podcast with Peter was, if this movie seems to contain all of my preoccupations now when it comes to movies, were they somehow in me? And The World According to Garp just was... A vessel for those or did it did it plant them there somehow mm. was it something about that film that if i had never seen it at that impressionable age would i still be fascinated by those topics now i don't know and i will never know but it's fun to think about sometimes mm. so Garp, my number one
0: i always wanted a child if i could have had one by myself i would have, but god or nature or whatever well you know you need a man you know what men are like full of lust I can talk to you because you're past all that. What? You're not well enough to walk. It's a very nasty bump. Anyway, the war was on. I was a nurse. One day they brought in a tail gunner who had been wounded by anti-aircraft in a raid over Germany. A splinter of steel had lodged in his brain and all he could say was his name. Gob. For medical reasons I couldn't quite understand, he also had a constant erection. Well, he deteriorated steadily. Till so one day all he could say was part of his name. Ah,
1: oh, it was then that I knew that he wouldn't last much longer. His erections continued, however, quite unabated. I see.
2: God, I haven't Did seen that started? since I was 21. I, mean, right. I liked it pretty well then. Although yeah, I, I, Glenn Close as his mother, Jenny yeah, Fields, like very
3: Marib- good. Yeah, I Hurt really good yep. in it. Uh, yeah, John Lithgow, very early very success good. Uh, for him. I, I, I'm not sure George Roy Hill was really the director for that material. Mm-hmm. No, so that's fair. I, I would disagree with you. Okay. I would, can we delete your earlier comments? No, but okay. let's see
2: if we can agree on your next pick. Our last outlier. Then we're going to get to the really good stuff here. I'm really hoping it's going to be Rocky Three here at number two.
3: Yes, that's right. It's Diner. Barry <laughs> Levinson's <laughs> okay. Diner. Is that what I heard? You Close. Say? Yeah, writer director Barry. I, a film I really adored at the time. Uh, you know, it's about. A, if you haven't seen it, I just I, I just really recommend you you take a look at it to see what kind of a, a commercial but very low key and 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 really interestingly idiosyncratic movie or just another quote just a coming of age film in some ways it's about a, a group of guys a few years out of high school it's 1959 baltimore levinson's own life story in some ways but the guys even though they're young adults you know they're still back in high school in a way but the cast the casting is just sometimes it just gets ma i mm-hmm. suppose you could say the argue you could argue that garp has the same magically right casting but Diner, for me, uh, when you look at Kevin Bacon, Mickey Rourke has never been better. He's so good. Uh, Tim Daly, you know... Uh, Ellen Barkin. A, a medium talent, Tim Daly. Another medium talent, Steve Gutenberg, actually top billed in that film. And he's wonderful. He is, yeah. And... You know, Paul Reiser, Daniel Stern, and those scenes with Ellen Barkin and, and Daniel Stern, those are the ones that really, really sting and hold up still. And it's just kind of like very rocky marriage, mm-hmm. really in its state, but, you know, two people not really ready for it.
2: Is it too complicated to just keep my records in the category, okay? Just put the rock and roll in with the rock and roll. Put the R&B in with the R&B. I mean, you're not going to put Charlie Parker in with the rock and roll, would you? Would you? I don't know.
0: Who is Charlie Parker? Jazz! Jazz!
1: He's, he was the greatest jazz saxophone player that ever lived.
0: What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. It's not that big a deal.
3: its it is. Don't you understand? This—this this is important to me.
0: Shrevey, why do you yell at me?
3: There's—there's some—there's some plot machinery in diner. I never hear you. I'd frankly forgotten about that a couple of the things really kind of are closer in spirit to something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High The same year or even a lot lower down the chain, Porky's, where you have a couple of like like sexual yes. shenanigans, slapstick things that, that are a little like, uh, But even those are handled so well by they Levinson. Are. And they and they, mm-hmm. keep, they keep it kind of in the real world. And it's I, I just, uh, you know, I remember seeing it and we're thinking, you know, this, this movie could go on another hour for me. You know? mm. Yeah, very good. Don't need much plot. Great reminder, I think. You know, if you have the right people and you can just—it's like the old checkoff rule. How do I keep
2: these people in a room talking? Mm-hmm. That's all you need. That's as much plot as I need. Yeah, I needed to see Diner for this list. It was one of my blind spots. What would you think? I remedied that, just watched it about a week ago, and I really loved it. You did Actually, it. Michael, I did. I think it's in, yeah, my number nine or ten of that year. All so it right. didn't make the top five cut, but really good. For all the reasons you said, those performances— I think the direction by Levinson is really assured, very smart, and there are certain elements you touched on where I thought it was maybe gonna go a step too far and then it rains it back in. And you're right, certainly about Mickey Rourke in that film as well. So wonderful diner Diner's heart. good. I have yeah. I have a question about Kevin Bacon and his character i like to pose to you, Fenwick. I'll pose it off air. Oh, we off can air. discuss that. Okay, well, off air. Okay. content or completely off <laughs> no, air? No, completely off air. No <laughs> one's going to hear this. Will Josh, will Josh hear? hear it? Will no, Josh hear it? Okay, no. Do I have to go home? <laughs> yeah, no. Josh can't listen. Okay, so we are in the home stretch. We have three more picks. These three movies do make at least two of our lists. Josh, you're going to do the honors with this choice. So, Fitz Coraldo. Yeah. I ended up seeing for the first
1: time. I'm so glad. Like you, Adam, did a little homework for this. And, of course, Werner Herzog's film about the the turn-of-the-century entrepreneur in Peru (laughs) who portages a steamship from one tributary to another in the Amazon, that's what I'm looking for, right? That section. And it's amazing. It's everything lives up to what I expected, even knowing that it was coming. I love the long shots that Herzog uses to really— emphasize the immensity of this undertaking and even mm-hmm. that one aerial shot that gives us a sense of what they're trying to pull off when Fitzcarraldo Klaus Kinski does that jump for joy when it starts inching forward you're there for him even yeah. though even though he's a lunatic he is who's endangered the lives out of his mind of and many making people. everyone suffer for maybe not his art that he's creating but his love of art. So right. I love the tension. Which is also the process character. of
2: working with Kinski.
1: Yes, and the process of Herzog making this film. Right. So all of the levels at play here, which are right there on the screen, makes this just immensely fascinating to watch and to think about. But I also like the little touches at them, which obviously don't get talked about as much, but uh, scenes that some of them are maybe bigger when they start chugging down this river and they hear those drums coming from the woods and... Fitzgerald responds by bringing his record player to the roof of the steamship and blasting Caruso back mm-hmm. at them.
0: Now it's Caruso's turn.
1: Just this wonderful moment of artistic antagonism that ends up for a while working out for him, but then also smaller touches like the scene where this tribe that he enlists to work for him, when they start to turn... And that moment where they slowly leave the lit circle from his kerosene lamp and their faces disappear into the mm-hmm. darkness and then their hands disappear. There are a lot of really beautiful filmmaking touches in Fitzcarraldo that, yeah, a shame it took me this long to see it. I, th- I thought about that last year when I
3: saw the James – gray film, the law city sure. Bee, which oh, actually has a lot of, you know, absolutely oh, a huge yeah. debt to it. Yes.
2: Yeah. No, that's a great point. If you guys,
3: uh, haven't seen it uh, and, and you're really into Fitzcarraldo, um, Check out The Less Blank. Yeah, yes. of Dreams. Yeah. Dreams. That's, I was going to that, say. That's fantastic.
2: Yeah, Fitzcarraldo is my number five film of 82. And if you have any doubt how remarkable it is, the movie about the making of the movie is arguably just as good. It really is. It's just, it's just the,
3: the other side of the megalomania. Yeah. That Herzog's exploring through Fitzcarraldo, the character. So I mean, very, you're seeing, yes. it, you're seeing
1: it in Herzog. Self-portrait, which, yes, you can detect in, in Fitzcarraldo, the film itself. And I think Sam pointed out, didn't he, that Ebert had these as one and two.
2: Yeah, right? I think you almost have to combine them. They're such a set, obviously, and they're both fantastic, as I said. But Kinski's performances too are something that, over the years, as I see them again, and I recently, in the past three years or so, watched Aguirre: The Wrath of God again. You you think of them as so big, as so larger than life, this and then isn't you realize really. no, you realize that even though Fitzcarraldo is a charismatic presence, certainly has a lot of passion. And I suppose you wouldn't call him too subdued. Kinski manages, despite being kind of a monster, brings this immense humanity to all of these roles and and is believable despite often being totally insane. Playing characters who are totally insane while at the same time probably being insane. Herzog would certainly argue he was.
3: I think it was the same year. Did you ever see Venom? The, no. The, the killer snake on the loose in a flat in London <laughs> <No>. movie? So <laughs> no. this is Kinski in, a, in an English language role, and it's, it's one of the worst films of the year. <laughs> and, uh, and, and this is terrible to make fun of dialect humor. You know, it's not, and it's not supposed to be funny at all, but there's some line where Susan George who's in it is something about like, well, you know, we've got to think. And he says, sink? I will tell you what to sink. <laughs> and it's like, to it's like, sink? You know, and the movie's already sunk by them. But anyway, right. check out Venom. Well, actually, don't. Actually, never check out Venom. Someday, we'll
1: get to it. He <laughs> almost sold me. The thing about Kinski as is is he's pitiable in a lot of these scenes and sure. clownish. There's that opening section yeah. where he's trying to sell right. his fellow businessmen on his plans and at a party, and it goes disastrously wrong, and then people are laughing at him. So, yeah, that was a surprise, too, Adam, is I had Agira in my mind, mm-hmm. much, much bigger yeah. in that film. And got something, you know, along the same
2: thematic lines, but performance-wise, very different. Well, let's get to another choice here that is a joint pick. And, Michael, it's your number one. And you know what? I think it really would have been better served maybe by Kinski playing the lead role. <laughs> Can you imagine Tootsie, Tootsie that would with a, That
3: would have been just just a pleasure. No, I love Tootsie. And, and I, I was reading up on Tootsie. Uh, both some critics at the time and a lot of critics since then, I, I didn't really realize how many people really don't like it at all. Huh. find the sexual politics kind of smug and even you know kind of retrograde and, and condescending. Uh, just don't really like any of the, quote, messaging in what Michael Dorsey, the actor played by Dustin Hoffman, who – you know, dresses and drag, and suddenly becomes as he says. You know, throughout the picture, at the at the end of the picture, he says, "I, I was a better man as a woman than right. I was the end of That's uh, the line that I think is the thesis line. I I wish wasn't yeah. in the movie. There's a lot of things that aren't great about the film. If you look at it as an artifact of 1982, there's. First of all, you got to put up with one, you know, that, that horrible song. The montage? The, the horrible song. Come on, was everybody not, sing it. I couldn't, know. Go <laughs> no, Tootsie Go. No, 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 not that one. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I mean, I'm talking you're about right, the, the other hit. The bucolic one. Yeah. You know, the lyric interlude.
0: Something's telling
1: TV-ish,
3: yeah, awful. And and, the, and at the when I was 21, you couldn't get that thing off the radio. But but I I think that it, the Sydney direction. The screenplay, which shouldn't work at all, but it was written by something like literally 14 or 16 different people. It was just a flip of the coin who got credit from the WGA. Larry Gelbart, Murray Shiskill, Elaine May. I think Adam worked on it for a time. Josh's
1: parents. <laughs> everybody worked on it. My and, first writing assignment in school. <laughs> yeah, But
3: I that, that film completely rolls with an audience. I've never seen an audience. That's the, When I think of the movie that gave me the most pleasure at the time, and still gives me the most laughs now. If you just look, uh, you know, and I, I maybe I favor comedies because they're typically disfavored. But mm-hmm. Bill Murray it was amazing to see. Bill Murray kind of in a in a role that absolutely, for better or for worse, mainstreamed his appeal. You know, and he improvised half his scenes anyway. But you know, he's wonderful as the playwright friend. Is kind of just this deadpan foil. I, the cast Have you and, mentioned Terry Gar yet? Terry Gar, great, oh, uh, so good. G- George Gaines, amazing. you know, unbelievable. George too. Uh, it's I, I love it. I love it.
0: I did have a good time. I really did, Michael. Oh, you did. Why didn't, yes, I I didn't did. bring enough money for camp? That's okay. It's cheaper to get mugged. Let's walk. Sure. The fares are really insane now anyway. Why didn't you have a good time? I did have a good time. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. What? What? Nothing! I'm nothing.
3: I just I'm perfectly fine. I just cry like this like a tick.
0: <laughs> Will you tell me what's wrong or I'll kill you?
3: Nothing's wrong, Michael. I'm really very
0: uh, (laughs) up. You're worried about your audition tomorrow, aren't
3: you? No, I'm not worried about that audition. Because I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. Because I'm completely wrong for it.
0: Why? What kind of a part is it?
2: A woman. So that was my other bit of homework. I had to watch Tootsie, and I really liked it. Not as much as you guys. Because, Josh, you have it high on your list as well.
1: Yeah, I've got it. Well, I've got it number four. And, and here's my hesitation about it, I guess. It speaks to what you're saying, Michael. I'd be curious if a lot of this criticism you've picked up on is does tend to be more looking at it in the last five to ten years or so. Because I was leery mm-hmm. of putting it, wondering, surely, surely the gender politics in this thing are not going to hold up to today's microscope. Uh, and, they and I don't, I, you know, you, you seem to hint that there may be things it's, that it's don't, a,
3: it's a little bit feminism for dummies, you yeah, know, and exactly. it's not even really great. It's not, it's, it's kind of a dorks idea but of feminism. I don't, but. Well,
1: okay. But I don't know. Is that entirely fair to the movie? If, if we're looking this at this as a top five film of 82, putting these sorts of ideas out there in a mainstream huge hit that I think you have to give credit for a movie being ahead of its time, even if it's dated now, in a way, and maybe not ahead of its time, but for a mainstream film. Again, ahead of mainstream Hollywood yeah, no, time. Yeah. No. And so I think there's I think there's a value in that besides on top of the fact that it is so funny and does move with such great except for those montages maybe, comic rhythm. I mean Murray's delivery and to see him ease into a little bit more of a character part. Terry Garrett I mean I, I think we need to start Saying the great Terry Garvin, yeah. we look every time she comes up in a sacred cow. Whether it's Close Encounters mm-hmm. or Young
2: Frankenstein, and you know, our we, eventual sacred cow of Mister Mom. You, well, no, we'll, we'll get, get, there. get there eventually. We'll get get a testable film. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> it is. Stop it. We were doing gender so well. You want to talk
3: about gender politics that, that, that may do not survive. Let's take this
2: outside. Okay, okay.
1: <laughs> that's no. That's the phrase, Michael. That do not survive. I think Tootsies do survive, even though they may not stand out to today's standards and, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. worthy because
3: of well, that. Well, one thing I don't really have much patience for, frankly, is is is, is people who, and and, and now it, it seems odd, but you can look at Tootsie as, you know, as very much a different era, just like we all look at some movies of the 30s and 40s is like a long time, a long time ago, right? Tootsie's its own kind of 80s artifact, but, if you're really gonna write that movie off uh, because the, the 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 sexual mores and the gender politics are, are are antiquated I you can you can use that stick to beat up half of the great movies commercial comedies all dramas everything that came out of Hollywood 20 30 years earlier I I just uh, you know, the, if I have any P, uh, un-PC bone in my body, it's it's that. I mean, mm-hmm. I just I don't see I don't see the value in that. Oh, Casablanca, it's not relatable behavior. Well, ah, I don't know, Citizen Kane, it's not really. Uh, it, you know, he's not nice, or you mm-hmm. know, it, it's not. I, I don't get those arguments. They're just they go they go about three inches for me, and then yeah. they're done. Yeah. No,
2: I can see that. I think it's worth
3: it. Okay, here's yeah. the thing. Tootsie is worth it. It's it was worth paying for the money at the time and it's worth seeing the whole movie again just for the look Charles Durning oh, gives yeah. Dustin Hoffman when he comes into the bar at the end and there's like great there's a beautifully judged three second sort of like uh-huh. double take, and mm-hmm. then he realizes that you know it's the it's it's the woman who's actually <laughs> he, a man who he he pro- who we yeah, proposed, proposed to. Yeah. And it's it's just that that scene in the bar is the it's it's peak comic ex- screen acting. Yeah. You can't get better than that. Mm-hmm.
2: I think my biggest pet peeve with Tootsie is the entire Dorsey-Jessica Lange romance. Uh, Everything about that I wish the was in another stuff. movie. The sincere stuff. Yeah. You don't like the sincere no. stuff. You're not a sincere man. Well, no. I, I, I don't like... That is what feels most conventional to I me. I will say this. That at the end of the day, the movie yeah. felt like it had to have its its leading man hook up with the leading man. Uh,
3: yeah, agreed. I think even though Jessica Lange won an Oscar, supporting actress Oscar for Tootsie, I think... And she, you know, she she does not have any trouble holding a close up or just maintaining your interest and attention. You know, whoever you are, you know, she's she just has that much going. I think mm-hmm. it just as a charismatic performer. But she, I don't know if she always gets the tone of the movie because she, she plays everything very, very much for uh, you know earnest serious. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, yeah. no, doesn't play into the comedy at right. all. She's
2: doing her own thing. And, and that's, better,
3: yeah. that's a better instinct than playing too much into the comedy because there's enough mm-hmm. comedy in that movie. But
2: that, the performance is a little calculated. I mean, not, not in calculating, but just it's a little studious. Yeah, no, I agree with that. That brings us to our final selection here. The movie that is number one on Josh's list, number two on my list, and basically the movie that proves that Michael... Has no heart. You really don't have a problem with ET the extraterrestrial. Is that drill, how it's
3: pronounced? You? I thought it was et.
1: Well, <laughs> see, now I you like it. Now, now I, you I like it. it. I thought it was just some weird, bad
3: uh, translation from another language.
1: <laughs> I am glad that we cleared this up, Michael. So, watch. You didn't watch it with the just family recently. Convinced I didn't get, get to because, yeah, as I said a few shows ago, my kids did not immediately fall for this. They saw it under less than pristine conditions. They reminded me of this. I forgot. I didn't mention this, Adam, when I brought it up before. They watched the whole opening scene with just sound with Grandma and Grandpa. No visuals. Why? I, I don't know. They were. This was a sleepover. Like I said, they couldn't get the thing going. VCR to so work? The DVD I, I player? Know. I don't know. Was it I, like a radio excerpt I'm a little frustrated that... Sorry, VCR. So I flash back to 82 there. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we watched it again. I wanted prime viewing conditions for them. And, it, you know, they liked it a little bit more. So, I'm sorry, just a little bit just more. Just a little bit more, but I, you know, they, what they won't admit is, you know, they're really traumatized by that whole illness section, which mm. goes on for a long, long
3: time. Well, You know, that's and, the thing about Spielberg; he is ruthlessly manipulative, and and it's wonderful when it works. And it's and I, I, I like, think i I, have, I like E. T. a lot, guys. Okay, good. So don't don't you know? Top ten, top ten, not
1: quite. Oh, uh,
2: not quite. Eighty two right. must have been a good year.
3: Well,
1: Porky's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, here's what I've been noticing about Spielberg stuff as I'm revisiting it as an adult. Obviously saw ET in eighty-two and obviously loved it. Right up, I mean, it was like aside from the alien me on screen, right? You're you're <laughs> flying around with your friends on bikes, it's right. your first taste you were of freedom. Flying? Oh man, we jumped. Uh-huh. We had ramps and no, everything at them, right? Yeah. The BMX, it took off. Nice. So this was made for me. Mm-hmm. But as an adult, I'm starting to recognize this is in close encounters, this is in jaws. That, and it's in Poltergeist, the heart of these movies are the authentic, deeply felt families that are being portrayed. And the amount of time we spend with them, the way we get to feel what's in their rooms, what the production design of these, you know, you think of Spielberg as this fantasy director, but it's the production design of these kids' rooms that matters. The toys they play with, the clothes they wear. That's why the fantastic works for us in a Spielberg film, because we know the families so well. The mundane has become so familiar. And when those two things meet, it creates this vortex of magic that really does hold up. And think about this family in this film. You've got the the recently surprised, you get the sense, surprisingly single mother— uh, separated from the husband, played by D. Wallace, who is note-perfect in this movie as a harried mom just trying to keep it together with these three kids who are feeling their independence but also feeling their mom's sorrow. You sense that in every scene, played by Robert McNaughton, Henry Thomas, and, of course, Drew Barrymore.
0: What are you going after Halloween? I'm not going to stupid Halloween. Why don't you go as a goblin? Shut up. It's not that we don't believe you, honey. Well, it was real, I swear! What are you going as, Gert? I'm going as a cowgirl. So, what else is here? Maybe it was an iguana. It was no iguana. Maybe a... a
2: you know how they say there are uh, alligators in the sewers?
0: Alligators in the sewers. All we're trying to say is maybe you just probably imagined it. I couldn't happened. have imagined it. Maybe it was a pervert or deformed kid or something. A deformed kid. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun.
2: There's nothing like that, penis breath! Elliot! (laughs) Sit down.
1: Because their life together as this family going through this transition right now is so authentic, and it's so true that that's why we buy E.T.'s entry into it. And that's why Mm -hmm. I think it moves us. It's not—those scenes are not perfunctory. They're essential. And it happens with all of Spielberg's really strong films— um when he doesn't entirely pull it off, say War of the Worlds, I think that's why maybe it doesn't hit as hard. No, that's a good point. And that's why I put E. T. up there as top tier Spielberg with close encounters, with Jaws, probably with AI, artificial intelligence, very different movie, but but those are my top and ones. And I agree.
3: I, I think it is top tier Spielberg. So I like to why hear that. why did it make my top five? I mean just missed it.
1: Okay. Well, you had to make room for Wrath of Khan. I mean, that's he did <laughs> completely understand.
3: Look, at the time, I just you know what? Honestly, my E.T. Phillips, Re- my E.T. reaction, uh, uh, you know, very much liking but not loving. It, it it was it was it was the almost the opposite of Close Encounters, which you know, which I saw earlier when I was in high school. But that film I saw six seven times. I thought the last thirty minutes. I still think the last, and I've said it here on the show. Last thirty minutes of Close Encounters, that's the Spielberg for the ages. Yeah. Everything about it. You might
2: be right on that, Michael not, Phillips. I still might about it. No, I love Close Encounters. Yeah, I know. I'm just playing right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those are our top five films of nineteen eighty two, and we're not we're not done. We're gonna we're gonna just really amp it up here with E. T. We're gonna do something that listeners have been clamoring for for a while now. Ever since we started to use the E. T. music as our music that anoints movies it officially transitions movies into the Pantheon yes but E.T. isn't in the film we spot chose Pantheon music from a movie that it's wasn't not? in the Pantheon now it is Michael uh. Back to the home. There it is. There it is, right where E.T. belongs. We are happy to put it in the Pantheon.
3: Can we whip through any honorable yes, mentions? Yes, let's
2: please do honorable mentions. Michael, what do you have?
3: I'll give them to you. Just you know, And not just because the show's been devoted to it. Blade Runner, okay? okay. E.T. Thank okay? you. 48 Hours, Fast Times at Richmond High, My Favorite Year, which is not, I don't think, a great film in terms of craft. but It is not. It's... <laughs> I just really, watched it, but it's really funny. I think it's okay. worth it just for the moment where Lainey Kazan, you know, is just calling Peter O'Toole's character Alan Swan, calls him Swanny. Yeah, and just you're right, just that's said, a good scene. And then he, Mark Linn-Baker says, "I'll give you that. he's an actor." A good a scene. River.
1: ten minutes of good acting. It's on Michael's top ten. list. Uh, you, see,
3: you know, but this does actually this uh, this betrays my penchant for comedy. You know, I'll forgive anything if I get three laughs out of anything. The Night of the Shooting Stars is one of the Don't great. Don't know that one. Uh, the, from the Taviani Brothers, Italian film uh, set at the very end of World War II. Really, really good film. Uh, the Return of Martin Guerre, a French film with uh, Gerard Depardieu and Nathalie Baillet. Check that out. Uh, the Draftsman's Contract, my favorite Peter Greenaway film still. Uh, the Grey Fox. Check that out. Richard Haven't Farnsworth, seen it. Wonderful characters set in the early, you know, it's an old cowpoke who sort of uh, accidentally discovers the early silent film industry. Uh, and then I guess i throw in Poltergeist, too. That's my number 10. Nice. Mm-hmm. And I never saw Poltergeist all the way through until last week. No kidding. Yep. And I do think it's a fascinating bookend. I mean, really a uh, straight bookend to E.T. It's like it was shot and set and conceived one neighborhood over. Yeah.
1: You know? Exactly. <laughs> yeah josh so my six through ten would probably include the dark crystal i i watched it recently so I mean, This is the
2: movie deck. i currently have at the bottom of this list i believe at the it. very bottom I
1: absolutely believe it this is a movie you should not even be allowed to watch it's behind but six it pack
2: kenny rogers starred in that oh, movie josh adam adam
1: <laughs> dark crystal masterpiece of world building we've been okay. talking about world building well i haven't seen it also, since i was seven also Another top five terrifying character. Yeah, maybe the Skeksis. Tron. How about Tron? I think. Tr- no, okay, Tron. so Tron is a four weird four from the bottom because yes, in many ways it belongs there, but it also has these abstract expressionist <laughs> elements to it that Fritz Lang's Metropolis gone disco. That's that's the positive take. <laughs> Roller disco on Tron. Roller, Roller disco. disco. You got it. An Evening with Robin Williams probably doesn't count, you know, TV special, but we revisited that when he passed. And, oh, it's it's so good. It's funny. And here's one white dog. Always wanted to see white dogs. The Sam Fuller 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 picture. So I watched it for this list, not knowing what I would get. This is where a trainer tries to deprogram a dog that's been taught to attack black people. It was very strident, very PSA about racism. But you've got Fuller's bracing in-your-face style going on at the same time that makes this really vicious and disturbing. I don't know, Michael. Do you have a take on? It's I haven't White seen it in a
3: long time, and, and I actually, because the release was so kind of haphazard and, and delayed.
1: Oh yeah, like years yeah. later in the U.S. Uh, it,
3: it, you know, absolutely in, in line though with the you know he, he was always a blunt. You know, I wouldn't say ham-fisted, but, but more just a blunt. You know, in-your-face kind of. Yeah. love that kind of allegory
1: and. It's not one of my favorite Fullers, but it's, it's a really interesting late one. Yeah. yeah, definitely worth checking out. And then just real quickly here, Diner, I'm with you, Michael, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. These are the ones fighting
2: to get into this mm-hmm. top yep, ten. Yep.
1: And here's one, Rambo First Blood, I yeah. think is a completely different film than the other yeah, Rambo I Pictures agree. and a really yeah. interesting one.
2: Okay, so now you guys have officially crossed off here between your list and your honorable mentions, all of my honorable mentions, except for two. I'll say the others real quick, 48 Hours, Fast Times. Officer and a Gentleman, Poltergeist, Diner, First Blood, Rambo. I thought it was going to go unmentioned. I really like that film. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, the two that have not come up. Sophie's Choice, Uh. which I will always appreciate. Pakula, great director. I'll always appreciate it because of Meryl Streep's performance and because of my love for the book. It's nowhere close to as good as the book, but few movies are as good as that William Styron novel. And Veronica Voss a Fassbender Fassbender film film set in the 1950s about a former German film star. Very good film. And that closes out our top five films of 1982. We would love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. You can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can find 12 years of reviews, interviews and top fives. That's
1: all in the show archives. While you're at filmspotting.net, go ahead and vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking what is Darren Aronofsky's best film? The Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan Director's new one, Mother, comes out in a couple of weeks. <laughs>
2: that was emphatic. That was good. I'll give you
1: that. Also, if you haven't already, please do check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film
2: Spotting SVU. You'll find them in Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your other podcasts. Out in wide release this weekend, a re release. On its 40th anniversary, a movie Michael just might think you need to go and see. He mentioned it more times this show than Blade Runner, which we reviewed in some detail. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Also, a sacred cow discussion here on the show, I believe, was Lincoln, what year was Lincoln?
3: 2012. Was it
2: 2012 that long ago? It can't be. Yeah, I think so. Wow. I think it was 2012. That just seems so weird to me. But on that show, we also discuss Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and we will link to that in our show notes if you want to hear that conversation. Out in limited release, Beach Rats, this is getting some good buzz. A film from emerging director Eliza Hitman. It came out of Sundance. Our friend Scott Tobias from The Next Picture Show gave it a positive review over at NPR.com. Tulip Fever, A 17th century set romance with one of my faves, Alicia Vikander and Dane DeHaan. It was completed in 2014. Long delayed, they pushed it back and back, and now it's finally hitting theaters. No screening, no screening for critics, you know. Dump
3: it in the theaters for right,
2: but they're going to dump it in the theaters on Friday. They are indeed. So next week on the show, we're going to discuss it the Stephen King adaptation and share our top five Stephen King movie scares it does open next weekend and if you've got a movie scare that's one of your favorite from a King adaptation send us an mp3 file feedback at filmspotting.net or leave us a short voicemail we may just use it on next week's show 312-264-0744
1: Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Disseau and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. And of course, Michael, thank you for joining us once again, bringing a handful of 82 titles that neither of us would have. (laughs) Brought to the list, so we appreciate that, and, and also
3: even, causing some nice splits. Uh, I never even got to Q
2: or Swamp Thing.
3: Have you seen that's true? Q or... Oh,
2: Swamp Thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's on my full list of films of 1982. Around forty five. <laughs> yeah, which right. I will link to. I, I am going to post my whole list of the films I've seen at Letterboxd. I'll link to it in Slick. our show notes. Good. No thanks, guys. Swamp it Thing. Fun. I've seen it, and Michael, you did as we said some writing about 82. We'll link to that in our show notes. Anything nice. else you want to direct people to? No, I you know, just the Twitter, you know, of course, mm-hmm. at Phillips Tribune. And you can
3: find the reviews and other things at com slash movies. All right. Thanks again, Michael.
1: Thank you, guys. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
3: What were we using back then? Well you were were you guys even alive when, when how old are you? No. Yeah. Seven. Eight? You were seven. Eight, seven. I was eight.
1: Okay. So our when did we get our first computer? It was after that. Yeah. I mean, the first
3: time I used it on the well no, we did, we used them on the first job, which was in eighty five, but they were terrible. Yeah, oh yeah. Nobody had them at home. It was just mainframe. Yeah. You know. We had it
2: we my mom we my mom was an early adopter. We had an Apple IIe in the mid eighties. Okay. Wow. 86, really... 87, somewhere around there.
3: In Iowa? In I'm Iowa. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so
2: the True story. <laughs> we're we'd, we'd go to the pizza ranch, Josh, and yeah. borrow their apple. <laughs> <Yeah. and
3: laughs> so, there's a ranch for pizza? There is. It's, a,
2: it's, it's like his a, favorite restaurant in Iowa. I was so
1: tempted to go, where was I? Do Michigan. They, Michigan. Do they, do they film Spaghetti
3: Westerns on that ranch?
1: <laughs> <laughs> they could. I almost went you in. You almost went? Because there was one in. I almost went in. Yeah. They must be expanding. It's catching on. It's taken 30 years, but uh-huh. the pizza ranch pizza concept. ranch. What is it?
2: It's it, it is like a buffet, right? Headquarters, Orange City, Iowa, baby. It,
3: it can't lose. It's, it's a surefire concept as cowboys and aliens.
2: Yep, <laughs> <laughs> it's there. You got it. Oh, so here we go. Okay, Josh. Go. Yeah. Wait a second. I'll have you know, Wisconsin, 18 locations. Okay, North what? Dakota, 14. There's 42 pizza ranches in Minnesota. What, how many in Illinois? Seven. Yikes! And there are 22 in South Dakota, but the kind home. Of,
1: what kind of pizza is that? Sort of Iowa in
2: 76. Jesus,
3: is it is it like that indistinct medium crust? Like it's not. Oh, we're not yes. really thin.
1: Yes. It's we're a buffet really... place, right?
2: Yeah, it's mostly a buffet oh. place. I it's it's really so, it's so really pizza not that bad.
1: Is, is one of like a you million
2: could, options. You can drive to Peoria, Josh, okay. or
1: Springfield and get your Pizza Ranch fix. One desperate very desperate day, I will eat at a pizza ranch. If
3: there ranch. was a pizza ranch when Lincoln was alive, yeah. he would have been like William Howard Taft.
2: True. Right?
3: I mean, okay. <laughs>
2: Irresistible. Uh, 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 Film Spotting is listener-supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.